Hi there, I'm Dan Jones, and this is my podcast, Climate Scientists. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for downloading or streaming or however you are accessing this. So this week we had one of my favorite conversations, one of my favorite episodes. We talked about so many different things and really got into it. Uh, it's with uh, Dr. Heather Ford. So Heather Ford is a paleo-oceanographer, and that means that she researches past climates, specifically looking at the ocean, to try to understand future climate change. Um, as I mentioned in the episode, I'm very much, uh, in terms of my research, I'm a modern ocean type person. That's the area that I'm the most familiar with. And I'd always been a little bit intimidated by paleoclimate and paleoceanography uh, because often you're dealing with uh, big error bars. And I don't mean that as a negative statement. That's just, just a fact. You're trying to do these uh, projections, uh, not projections, but you're trying to do these uh, reconstructions over very long time periods using a bunch of different proxies, uh, but it's really it's really fascinating stuff. It's really I applaud anyone with the guts and heart to plow through paleoceanography and to to make it work and to make some big important advances there. Um, so Dr. Ford, she has a very nice website, uh, heatherlford.com. Um, that seems to be something that more and more kind of academics are doing these days, making their own website, putting themselves out there in that way. And you can also find her at, uh, at HL underscore Ford on Twitter. She is a, uh, Dr. Ford is a NERC independent research fellow. That means she wrote a very thorough fellowship proposal and it was funded by the Natural Environment uh, Research Council. And uh, she is working currently at the University of Cambridge and the Depart Department of Earth Sciences. Uh, and she does a lot of different stuff. I'll let her describe it in the actual episode in terms of what her specific research is on. But I really appreciated her time and her uh, openness and willingness to talk about a lot of different things um, that I will let us get to very soon. Um, right, a couple things. She brought along her adorable puppy, which was awesome, which is amazing. The puppy's name is uh, Samuel Adams, after the revolutionary, after the American revolutionary, not after the beer. And uh, so you will hear some uh, dog noises occasionally. Uh, yeah, Sam, Samuel didn't really bark, uh, but, you know, he made some general puppy noises and was playing around in my office a little bit. Um, so that's, and at some point about halfway through, we had a bunch of people come in to say hello to the puppy. So there's a break in the podcast, which is kind of fun with everyone kind of, uh, you know, admiring the puppy. Uh, there's also a little road noise. It was hot. We had the window open, you know, so you'll hear some quiet rushing in the background from the road. Yeah. Let me ramble just for a couple of minutes and then we'll get on with it. So if you want to skip a minute or two ahead, that's totally fine. Uh, I just want to ramble a little bit and try to work on some stuff, get some stuff out. So speaking of websites, uh, I've been making my own. I'm still in the very baby phases of making my own website. Uh, I'm just playing around with GitHub and playing, playing around with different uh, style sheets and things. I've been working with my friend Chris Lauder, uh, who uh, is generally more te technologically proficient than I am. He knows more about kind of general coding and websites and all of that. He's the person I go to for that that sort of advice, typically. Um, so, yeah, it's been it's been alright. It's been an okay process, and I guess I've been thinking about you know why did I do this? Uh, why have I been interested in uh, you know making a website? And I try I'm trying to be honest with kind of myself. I mean, yeah, I, I could just say it's about you know putting myself out there and kind of connecting, um, but you know I'll be a little more open than that with 
uh, it, it's a weird kind of ritual I feel like I'm going through. I'm making this electronic totem on which to project my sense of self. It's independent of, you know, any particular place that I am in a, in a particular time. It's just a, a weird ritual uh, that I'm that I'm going through. So there is some there is some emotional reason I'm doing it as well. I'm sure. Um, I think I've been putting way too much value on external validation. I think I've been personally putting way too much emphasis on that. So. Um, I'm still just trying on some level, I feel like, to get good grades, which is not exactly the healthy emotional place to be. That's not how you work as a healthy, independent scientific researcher, right? You, you, uh, it's, uh, well, at the same time, it's not bad to look for that external validation. You don't want to put all of your eggs in that basket. The, the world is not up to the task of constantly providing you uh, validation and constantly patting you on the back it, because it, it has its own stuff going on. Cut it, cut it a break. It's got so much of its own mess to deal with. It really doesn't have the time or ability to constantly pat you on the back. Um, so the whole process of putting up a website has been kind of therapeutic for me in that way, even though I'm just in the very, very baby stages of it and have uh, have not gotten very far with it. Oh, I wanted to uh, mention, I'm not being paid by them, I promise. This is just something that I, I really like. Um, <clears throat> so I learned about this po- podcast called Ologies, uh, you know, like biology, psychology, it's uh, ologies. And uh, I've listened to, to one episode so far, an episode, episode on linguistics, and it's a very, very nice podcast. I really have enjoyed it. Um, yeah, it's casual, it's laid back. The host's name is Allie Ward, so if you check that out, um, ologies with Allie Ward. Um, so without too much more uh, rambling from me, why don't we go ahead and get into our episode with Dr. Heather Ford. Again, I know I already said it, but I'd like to thank Dr. Ford for her time and her openness. Um, really, this was one of the... I got so much out of this conversation, and I'm so glad that she stopped by. Uh, so, yeah, um, check out her work on her website. Check out her science and her tweets, uh, whether uh, you're a paleo-oceanographer or not. And um, I wanted to mention, we did. we talked about... Uh, one of her papers that had received a lot of attention recently, and uh, this paper is on is uh, on uh, a gender analysis for talks and posters at the American Geophysical Union meeting. Um, this was something that we discussed with one of her co-authors, uh, Cameron Brick, a couple of episodes ago, and uh, you can find that paper on her website or on Cameron's website. Uh, and the title is Gender Inequality and in Speaking Opportunities at the American Geophysical Union Fall Meeting. So that came out in Nature Communications in 2018, and there's some important stuff on there. Uh, okay, yep, let's go ahead. Let's get into it. Enjoy this conversation with Dr. Heather Ford. Here we go. Nice. Oh, that's great. That's adorable. Thank you very much. Oh, a little play mat. Yeah. So you said that just, just a few, she's just a few weeks old, huh? Yeah, she's 13 and a half weeks. Yeah. So I've had her for about a month. Okay, yeah. yeah. Did you get her from just... Um, I got her you... from a breeder in Brighton. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I've, I've wanted a Boston Terrier for a few years now. And I've like known that I was gonna name it Sam. Well, I guess when I knew that I was moving to England, I was gonna I was gonna name it Samuel Adams. So um, <laughs> just as a nice reference there. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's it's really funny because um, 
sometimes people get it, and some people, I don't I don't expect British people to necessarily get it, but uh, yeah. oftentimes Americans are like, oh, after the beer, like no, not after the beer. <laughs> <laughs> you see the person on the front of the beer. <laughs> yeah, that's like a historical picture. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. After the beer. Like, have you never looked at the bottle? It's yeah. Like, it's got a person on there, and it's a reference. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I get the impression from the casual conversations I've had with, you know, folks who grew up here, they don't necessarily learn a ton about the American Revolution. That's understandable. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, look, we had way too many colonies who declared independence. We don't have... Have you seen the list of, like, here's all the colonies that declared independence yeah. from, from England? We do not have time to go through all of them. Yeah. There's way, way too much. Way too many to go through. Yeah. But um, uh, that's adorable. So that's like a dental bone. It's like a. Yeah, it's just it's just a chew. Um, she only eats like so it's it looks like a toothbrush, but she only ends up eating the head and then the handle. She's like she's just done with it, but it <laughs> keeps her occupied and chewing's really soothing for them and licking and that sort of stuff. So. Nice. And I'd rather chew, have her chew on something like that than my shoes. So totally. Yeah. It's good to have her as a co, as a get, as like a host, a co-host. Yeah. yeah. You can you can co-host a podcast. Yeah. Little puppy. Um, yeah. Again, thanks for doing this. I'm yeah. Glad, glad you're here. Yeah. Yeah. No. Thank you very much for asking me. Um, yeah. So I, you, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, no. I'd listen to I I'd listen to Cameron's um, podcast a bit, and um, so. Uh, yeah, it was it was it was nice that you sort of researched mm. me and then and then invited me on. So yeah, well, I saw that you were the lead author on the study that we talked about a little bit, the mm-hmm. ADU study about mm-hmm. um, uh, gender bias and the you know assignment of talks versus mm-hmm. posters, mm-hmm. and uh, we talked about that a little bit. And um, then I yeah I looked you up and oh you're in town and oh you do climate relevant research. Like, mm-hmm. I should totally mm-hmm. have you on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. thanks thanks for doing that. Yeah. Um, so you're at Earth Sciences, right? I am. Just up mm-hmm. the road, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't spent a ton of time in there. Is that in the building that's kind of in the center of town, or there's also another campus, isn't there? There's well, there's like Bullard, a... yeah. And so that's kind of, I think it's off Madeline Lee as well. Yeah. It's up north. But the yeah, I'm on the main campus in Downing site. Um, that's where most of the people who do um, the climate science, the paleoclimate science are. Um, with the exception of Eric Wolf, I guess he he overlaps a lot, or he was at Bass at one he point, was, right? Yeah. So. yeah, he worked at Bass for a long time, and yeah. uh, I think he's still, you can get a kind of association with Bass, like okay. a, a fellow, a fellow or something like that, yeah. that allows you to, you know, still kind of easily get in the building and stuff, so I think he has some setup like that, even though his main job is at the university. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know him a little bit. I know him through this Cambridge Center for Climate Science. I ha- I know about that, and I've attended a couple of events, but probably not as many as I should. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's been a, a fun network. Um, I worked as the coordinator for a year, which um, that was an interesting job because my job was not necessarily to organize the events, but to make sure there were people who were in charge of organizing the okay. events and kind of occasionally delegating and prodding. Yeah, occasionally nudging them like, "How's it going? How's yeah. it going?" Yeah. And offer help and support, of course, but yeah. that was, uh, yeah, that's what the coordinator kind of does and, yeah. you know, organizes the business meetings where you discuss possible events and stuff. And, um, yeah, I think that the idea behind that organization is that there are lots of people doing climate-relevant research in Cambridge, but there isn't really a central, or there wasn't really a central entity, mm-hmm. you know, there wasn't like an umbrella that everyone could fit under, so you had people doing pretty things that were relevant to each other in slightly different parts of town that just never saw each other Mm -hmm. (laughs) because everyone was going to their building and working on the stuff that they were supposed to be working on, uh, which is understandable. I think it's, it's interesting, like, how do you do that? How do you create a fertile environment for 
collaboration and for uh, like new research and new work it's still yeah. not it's not really obvious to me still I mean you is it do you just put the right people in the same room or do you need to do more than that um, it's a yeah it's a complicated I, equation yeah I, th I, I think it's I think even within a building it can be hard to foster um, collaborative environments and I don't have a good answer of how to do that um, yeah I don't have a good yeah. answer on how to do that and um, my colleague Michelle Kane she's uh, over at, at Oxford now and uh, they have a similar kind of organization and uh, they took a bit more of an active approach where they got people in a room and they had them do I don't remember I don't have a good example but they had them do these group exercises almost these kind of like team building yeah. exercises which sounds a little bit cheesy you know having people do specific like tasks together yeah. as opposed to just putting them in, in the same room and trying to facilitate that but she said it kind of was helpful I mean you get to learn more about what other people are doing yeah um, so you just have to Maybe you have to do stuff like that, but be upfront about how weird and awkward it's going to be. It's like, okay, this is weird, but it, it, stay <laughs> it with actually me. helps. Yeah, it, it can work. Yeah, yeah. If you stick with it, yeah. and it can actually help people in different disciplines work together. Um, yeah. So that's. Um, I didn't do a lot of research about your work in particular because I kind of, um, if it's somebody that I don't know already, I like to get them to like tell me about sure. it I think it's better I think it's yeah, more, yeah. more natural I mean, there's yeah. different styles I mean there's people who really prepare a ton of questions and stuff but I think it's more natural just to have a chat we're already rolling is that okay oh, is yeah that no fast? that's fine yeah okay, yeah yeah cool it's not like a trap it's just meant to be more there's not like a hard start to the okay. conversation you know yeah no that's fine yeah so I saw paleoclimate mm -hmm. there's some oceanography in there mm -hmm. right? there's some coring stuff there's some yeah, yeah so yeah. well so um yeah, so what I do is I work on paleoceanography. So usually when I describe myself, I describe myself as a climate scientist, and then I get, get into the nuts and bolts of what I do, because yeah. paleoceanography to anybody outside of our very specific field is like, what, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I work on marine sediments, um, and what I do is look at um, the fossils that are found in marine sediment. Uh, and analyze the chemistry of those fossils. You can use um, the chemistry to understand things like what the temperatures were in in the past, uh, what was the carbon content of the ocean in the past, how the ocean currents were moving around, what was the variability of the ocean, um, that sort of thing. That's pretty. Yeah, that's pretty amazing to me because the kind of oceanography I do, it's very modern day and it's very, uh, you know, I do modeling and data analysis and stuff. But it's very focused on the kind of current present ocean mm -hmm. I was about to say the current ocean but that sounds weird the present ocean mm -hmm. um, and I know that my my old advisor Taka Ito I never know if you say old advisor or they're not your advisor anymore but they were anyway <laughs> well, that's a, I, it doesn't advisor <laughs> mentor previous yeah previous advisor yeah 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 so he's he made a shift and that is now working a lot more in paleoclimate and you probably know more about this than than I do but he did a uh, he did a study that's <laughs> oh, the puppy's playing with the, yeah. the curtain. It's okay as long as there's not like a way for the puppy to get hurt, is there? As long as <laughs> no, the puppy's okay. I well, think, I think if she was in distress, no. she'd let us know, so. Okay, the blinds will be fine. I'm not worried about this. They'll be okay. Well, maybe she'll discover how to like lower the blinds. <laughs> I do not like the, the cords, though. No cords. Oh, yeah, probably. I'll put her on my lap. Probably stay away from the cords, yeah. Um, so he worked on this study where they were trying to infer the circulation of the Antarctic circumpolar mm. current mm -hmm. in past geological mm -hmm. eras, mm -hmm. looking at the sediment distribution and trying to make some statement about, oh, here's 
how we think the isopic nodes were tilted right. on average based on the sediment distribution. Yeah. And uh, the tilt of those density surfaces can tell you about the transport and how much volume transport you have going through, you know, that narrow Drake passage between Antarctica and South America. And I just mentioned that as like to, to a reference point, like that's what that's the little bit of it that I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. But do you do a similar kind of you from the sediments? You said you try to learn about something about the circulation, right? So there, well, there's a couple different ways that you can look at um, uh, circulation. So one of it would be uh, looking at the silt and sand content, um, like your previous um, advisor did. Um, another thing that somebody has done, uh, Jean Lynch Stieglitz, who's at uh, Georgia Tech, she looked. It was she one of the collaborators, possibly yeah. on that. Yeah. yeah. So she. Yeah. Um, that, yeah they were looking. That's where he is. It's, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So she's. She was looking. She did a really nice study um, several years ago now, where she was looking at um, trying to figure out the. Um, uh, I guess the 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 amount of water going through the the straits of um, in the Gulf, trying to predict what the Gulf Stream intensity was. So looking at thermal wind and looking at the isopycnals, looking at um, the fossils. Yeah, Gulf, Gulf of Mexico. Gulf of or, Mexico. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what okay. is, yeah, and looking at um, the oxygen isotopes, I think, mm. and looking across across the 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 strait that goes from the Gulf of Mexico up, and trying to reconstruct those isopycnals. And then you can use things like sediment and and those sorts of properties because the you know, depending on the in, the intensity of that current, you would you presumably be able to back calculate how strong that current was in the past. Wow. So, um, but the things that I usually do, um, uh, what I'm working on right now is um, carbon isotopes are really um, really classic paleoceanography um, to try and figure out where ocean currents are coming from. But there's new um, techniques as well, uh, like looking at neodymium isotopes. Uh, and that's something that I will be getting into um, in the near future as part of the research that I'm doing right now. So how does the how does the carbon isotope bit work? I know I don't know much about paleoclimates, so feel free to be very broad in general. Like if you wanted to use different isotopes of carbon to infer something about ocean circulation, can, can you give me a really basic example? Well, so um, so the carbon isotopes, there's two stable isotopes. There's carbon-12 and carbon-13. And um, in the areas um, where uh, water forms, where deep water forms, um, you have a, a value. Uh, and it turns out that um, the, we call it the preformed value, the preformed value in the North Atlantic is really different from the South Atlantic. Um, so you can use, uh, if you look at the modern ocean today, you can see that there's a very um, distinct pattern in these carbon isotopes, at least in the Atlantic. Um, and so the, the fossils that I use are called foraminifera. They're little single-celled um, protists about the size of a single grain of sand. Um, they incorporate that carbon signal. So you can look at the carbon signal in those fossils. From the atmosphere, while they're alive. Well, right. not from the atmosphere. No. It's whatever. Oh. Um, it's what's, it, what's in the ocean. So the carbon isotopes are set by um, you know, the different water currents that go up into there, and also the biological activity, right? So, um, phytoplankton pull out carbon-12 preferentially so, so these that are, these are ocean-based organisms mm, that spend yeah. their whole lives in the yeah, ocean. Yeah, so, okay. yeah. So they so, incorporate carbon from their water environment. Exactly. So okay. they precipitate their shells from the water in which they live. Yeah. So um, that's another way to also look at the, the oxygen isotopes of the water that they're living in will also incorporate that signal mm-hmm. as well. And is, a, bu- a bunch of different things. So Is, is that harder in the ocean? Because I guess in the atmosphere it's that's pretty well mixed, right? Mm-hmm. But maybe the ocean's not as well mixed. No, the, the ocean, but that's one of the reasons 
reasons that it ends up being a good tracer, okay. right? So the yeah. average um, circulation time is about a thousand years in the ocean, right? Yeah. So if you have a tracer like carbon, um, it does, I mean, carbon, um, as it moves, those water mass move, um, we say that the water ages, yeah. um, but essentially what happens is, you know, uh, organic respiration and that, um, that carbon 12 goes back into the water. It ages um, in terms of the, the last time since it has been influenced by the atmosphere. You know, it's like, from the surface. Yeah, yeah from the exactly. surface. Yeah, the yeah. old water hasn't been influenced by the surface for a long time. Exactly. Young water has yeah. recently had some contact with the surface. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good point. So if the if you have a system like the atmosphere where the carbon is well mixed, you could look at isotopes, but you don't have a good way to say where it came from because that's a well mixed system. I hadn't really thought about it in that way before that because the ocean is less well mixed on those time scales that you could use it as a better, you could use the carbon isotopes as a better fingerprint of where you think things came from. Yeah. yeah. So the, the disadvantage of, of the carbon isotopes is there's this huge biological component, right? So, um, microbes respire organic carbon and that's one of the reasons that you get that aging right so um, there is, yeah there is a carbon cycle yeah there is no, a, a carbon. biological carbon cycle exactly and that affects the age or the, the isotope composition. yeah exactly okay um so but the advantage of using something like a neodymium isotope is that there is there isn't a biological um aging right. there so okay. it's it's a it's a more simple mixing model, but yeah. there's there's all there's also complications with neodymium as well. So. so neodymium could be more of a physical tracer because it doesn't participate in the biological part right. of the carbon cycle. Right. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. What are some of the problems though? You mentioned the. Uh, well, some of the ex the problems are uh, just exchange with the the sediment as well, and okay. also where the provenance of where those water masses are coming. Like, um, you know, did the did the um, formation of the water masses switch between the Canadian Shield versus um, more towards Norway because those have very different neodymium signals. Um, so that's one of the the one of the complications with neodymium. But I think that I think one of the things that paleoceanography is trying to do is is uh, really come about things with more of a multi proxy approach. Mm. And I mean, obviously proxies aren't necessarily yeah. all going to agree with each other so but proxy you use that in place of having the actual temperature measurements right, or the exactly. salinity measurements you can say yeah I can use something that should be related to the temperature that isn't the temperature right yeah okay right. so you're saying multi-proxy so, so like you have trying multiple to have... ways of reconstructing temperature and do they say the same if they say the same thing that gives you more confidence in what you're trying to reconstruct if they don't say the same thing there could be many reasons why they might have not have said the same thing and that's that's kind of an interesting scientific question as well big error bars potentially right i think that's one of the things that's always intimidated me to be honest about paleo oceanography or paleo climate is like here are the error bars wham, yeah. Wham. yeah they can be really big and it's it's not for the i always like to joke that it's like it's not for the faint-hearted like you have to be comfortable with that level of yeah <laughs> level and of when error. you're looking for for really tiny signals like so for instance i work on the um i work in the pliocene which is this time about three to five million years ago um it's nothing is going to be a direct analog for future climate change but it's mm. kind of the most recent time where we had globally warm temperatures with were two to three degrees warmer than the day um we know that atmospheric co2 is about where we are with human inputs yeah. so it's a it's a pseudo analog but it's never going to be a great analog um, but one of the main questions is, um, if you so, look at the... Sorry, you said that like five million years ago? Three to five three, million three to five, years, yeah. yeah. So if you... One of the big questions... Um, so the, the tropical Pacific ends up being a big um, driver for climate. Um, and one of, the, one of the phenomenons that really illustrates that is El Nino Southern Oscillation, mm -hmm. right? This is, a, this is an event 
that happens every two to seven years that ends up having um, uh, global impacts, yeah. right? It's not just a tropical event. For sure. Um, to, uh, to grossly oversimplify it, it's warm Pacific water sloshing back and forth in response to the winds. Exactly. And how, 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 uh, the, the, the distribution of that warm Pacific water does have a big impact on climate because it affects... Uh, heat exchange with the atmosphere and and winds and things like that. Yeah. So, and you'll yeah. get things like mass it, during strong El Nino. You'll get things like massive um, rains in in mm. California, which is where I'm from. Uh, and uh, you know, Australia will be really dry and have lots of uh, lots of wildfires. Sometimes, it's, so outside of what's happening just in you know the Galapagos or 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 you know the the Western Warm Pool, uh, you know, it has huge climate impacts. Yeah. And so, um, because the tropical Pacific is so important, one of the big questions is how warm does the warm pool get um, oh, okay, in yeah. the past, right? Mm -hmm. And so, during the Pliocene, uh, we this has been a controversial topic within within the research field: is how warm did the warm pool get? And if you're looking for subtle differences about of about a one degree, um, our proxies have errors of one degree <laughs> when we're trying to do the reconstructions. So uh, uh, it ends up being really difficult sometimes. Yeah, that sounds hard. That does yeah. sound hard. Is that so that's an area where do you do work in the Pacific? Is that part of where? Yeah. So yeah. most of my work has been uh, most of my work has been in the Pacific so far. I have done a little bit of work in the North Atlantic, but most of it's been in the either the tropical Pacific or the North Pacific. Okay. Yeah. So that's one of the questions you're trying to address. Is that El Nino question, or what's what's more, or were, they, were you just describing the general kind of problem? Well, so. Like, um, so one of the things that I've worked on is, is trying to reconstruct El Nino in the okay, past. Yeah. So um, I did a reconstruction, uh, trying to reconstruct El Nino during the last glacial maximum. So 20,000 years ago, uh, there were giant ice sheets in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, CO2 was lower than it is today. What It's not an analog for what ENSO will do in the future, but how does ENSO respond when we know that we, the boundary conditions of the climate are really different than today? Mm -hmm. um, and so the reconstruction that I did um, uh, it showed that um, El Nino was reduced during the last glacial maximum in comparison to today. Um, so it was weaker than now. Right. And mm -hmm. so one of the other questions um, that I, I'm not pursuing, but my um, my old advisor, my old, uh, or not old, but um, my previous supervisor, previous, yeah, my previous yeah. supervisor <laughs> uh, is continuing to work on is understanding, can we reconstruct ENSO during uh, the Pliocene warm period? So three million years ago when we has a time period that is more of an analog for future climate change. What is ENSO doing? Because um, right now we, we uh, a lot of the models, well, the model of ability to predict ENSO has improved, but there's, um, at least in the IPCC report, which is uh, over a decade old now, um, most of the uh, models had uh, big disagreements as what to ENSO was doing. And we know that ENSO is this huge pattern that influences um, global climate. It's kind of a big question to understand how variability will, will change in the past. So we, we, at least for paleo, um, and I think even for um, future climate predictions, we, we do a relatively good job of understanding how mean climate will shift with time, but understanding that variability is actually really hard to, um, to quantify. And it, it's also really important, you know, like if you're looking at monsoon variability, are the rains going to come? How often are they going to come? How do you predict, um, you know, crop failures? And, and that has broader implications as well. Yeah, for sure. So that was some. Of, that was your previous work, right? Are you mm -hmm. you're still kind of in? So what? No, I'm you're, still. Yeah. You're doing a fellowship here mm -hmm. now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What's the fellowship involved? Uh, uh, so the fellowship is looking at um, uh, ocean circulation during the Pliocene. Okay. Um, so 
uh, my colleague, Natalie Burles, who's at George Mason University, um, she came out with a paper recently. Uh, I guess one of the things is that the, the, so the Pliocene was really different than it is today, if you look at the tropical Pacific. The, the data that we have on hand um, is that the warm pole wasn't um, exceptionally warm, but the eastern Pacific was, was really warm. Mm. It was, um, I think, two to three degrees warmer than today. So if you imagine, uh, it's kind of a misnomer, but we call it a permanent El Nino, or we've sort of shifted, shifted away from that. We call it El Padre. So essentially, <laughs> you know, if you, if you think about an El Nino event, what happens in the tropical Pacific is that the, um, the eastern Pacific warms a lot, right? And so if you look at three million years ago, the climate reconstructions that we have basically say that the eastern Pacific was also really warm um, during this time. So you're kind of stuck in a permanent El Nino or El Padre state is what we call it. Um, and when, uh, when Natalie forces a climate model with, the, um, with different albedo um, parameters and also the, the differences in the temperature gradients across the Pacific and across the, um, uh, into the high latitudes, so going from the equator to the high latitudes, um, one of the findings that she has is that there's um, deep water formation in the North Pacific, which is kind of oh, a big really? result because today we only have intermediate water formation. Yeah, that's right. Um, no, you don't get you don't really get deep water formation in the in the Pacific mm -hmm. these days. It's certainly not a mm -hmm. hot spot of, <laughs> right. of deep water formation. Right. And yeah. if you if you also think about how ocean circulation uh, is today, the the North Pacific ends up being a place where we store the ocean stores a lot of carbon. It's a huge reservoir yeah. of carbon. Um, so if you start uh, ventilating that part of the ocean that has larger implications for how much carbon mm. um, the ocean can store and where the the carbon is being stored yeah, in the ocean for sure um so the the that's the question that i'm working on right now is it was there do we see um additional um proxy reconstructions that suggest that there was deep water formation um what were the characteristics of of that water um and then also doing a, a reconstruction in the atlantic as well mm. um just to trying to characterize all of the different um uh, deep ocean circulation is is part of the idea, at least the motivation. I know that it scientifically would involve you know many many steps, but in terms of the motivation, is part of the idea, um, you know, is to imagine what would happen if that kicked off again, and what would happen if the North Pacific started you know convecting deep, mm -hmm. deeply and forming deep water like that again, and how would that change the you know, storage of carbon like you mentioned, and you know, is, is there any potential for that to happen? Are there thoughts on that? Did, did people have opinions well, I think, about Well, I, I think that's the motivation of the work that, that I'm interested in, right? So with, with global warming, the ocean is absorbing about 90% of the heat and yeah. a third of the carbon yeah. um, right now. So if we look into you know, long-term equilibrium uh, states, what does that mean for how the ocean itself is going to be moving that heat and that carbon around? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, if you start essentially ventilating the North Pacific, and that place where the ocean effectively stores carbon today, if, if, if that's no longer a place where we store carbon, does that have broader implications for how much carbon the ocean will actually right. store with, with a globally warm climate? Yeah, that makes sense. A lot of people are interested in the Southern Ocean for that same reason, that you know, the Southern Ocean absorbs a lot of the heat and carbon in particular that you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, it's a region of deep water, uh, relatively, yeah, deep water formation around Antarctica, and you can get kind of intermediate depth mode and intermediate waters as well that could mm -hmm. stay in the interior ocean for a long time. And um, that's a question that people are trying to unravel is like, in the Southern Ocean, it's the Southern Ocean analog of the question that you just brought mm -hmm. up. Can the Southern mm -hmm. Ocean keep doing that? Right. Can the Southern Ocean carbon sink keep operating? 
Um, I may have missed. I may have misunderstood something. So you can totally feel free to correct me. But like, so you were saying that you get deep. You in the past, there's evidence to show there was deep water formation in the North Pacific. In was it warmer climates or in, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, warmer mm-hmm. climates? Okay, mm-hmm. so that's counterintuitive, right? If you, I guess, from like a, if you didn't think about anything else and you just said, well, if the planet gets warmer that's going to stratify the upper ocean and discourage convection, mm-hmm. uh, right? And discourage deep water formation. So if, if that's the only simple mental model you used, then that's a surprising result. Well, I think that the other thing is, is that with global warming, we're going to change the moisture transport, yeah. right? So right yeah. now there's a really strong halocline uh, mm-hmm. in the North Pacific because you transport a lot of moisture from the, the warm pole up to high latitudes, right? Mm-hmm. So that if you, so in Natalie's model, essentially that, that strength of that, that moisture transport decreases. So you basically break apart or break down that halocline so that you actually get active convection in the North Pacific. Yeah. Halocline being a region where you get uh, a sharp change in salinity with depth. Right, exactly. Yeah. So if you've got a steep halocline, if you've got a, then that could discourage convection. Right. right? Yeah, because it makes it, if you want to, the recipe for easy convection is to don't have much change in density with depth. Right. And if you have big changes in density with depth, that could potentially, depending on how it's configured, could discourage convection. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's a good, a great example about how, you know, that's a, a scientifically fascinating result that's counterintuitive, that if you use the simplest kind of just uh, off-the-shelf mental model, you wouldn't predict it. So you need a deeper understanding of the physical system to mm-hmm. predict that. And uh, I love that we're talking about science. Will you have a sleeping on your <laughs> yeah. arm? That's this is awesome. her natural state. She, she, her preferred <laughs> sleeping place is, is on me. So, <laughs> my, uh, when, my son is six now, but when he was a baby, that was where he, he needed somebody to hold him to sleep. Yeah. And so that made for an intense few months. Like you couldn't put him down. As soon as you set him down, he would just wake up and start, start crying. So, uh, it was, yeah, it, was a, it made for an intense few months where like you had to have an adult near him or holding him. I don't know, we tried everything. Um, and the only person who was able to get him to calm down and sleep in a, his crib was actually Taka Ito, my advisor that I oh, mentioned yeah. a minute ago. Uh, yeah, I, I really loved working with him. He's a great, uh, just a, a great advisor for me. And he's the calmest person I've ever met. He's very, very chill. You know, I don't know if you've interacted with him I'm before, not, no. but maybe... Um, now that he's doing more paleo, he might show up <laughs> here and there mm-hmm. through working with Gene Lynch Stieglitz. Um, yeah, so that's uh, so. Where where were you before Cambridge? I was at uh, Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory in, at Columbia University in, in New York City. Yeah. 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 Well, technically not. Well, Columbia University is in New York City, but Lamont is actually in this beautiful um, campus outside of the outside of the city. Yeah. So it's kind of nice to, I kind of had a little bit of both worlds. I lived in New York City and also would end up going to the Burbs, to this beautiful campus. Mm. Uh, oh, so you, yeah. so you lived in the city and then worked on mm-hmm. the kind of remote campus mm-hmm. on the Columbia, on the, I haven't been there, but yeah, that's what I've heard that the, the actual campus of the Earth Observatory is really nice and green and beautiful, but it's super close to to New York City yeah. itself. Yeah, and I lived in the Burbs a little bit too, but um, yeah, I did, a, I did a little bit of both, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, well, what was that like? How did you did you enjoy that? And yeah, no, I, I um, that was my first postdoc, so um, I was there for maybe two and a half years. Um, I uh, it I I think it set up a lot of um, a lot of success for me uh, in where I am today in some ways. Because um, so my um, my first postdoc advisor was Maureen Ramo, 
Um, and uh, one of the first things that she did when I got there is that she uh, she was like, okay, you're going to write an NSF grant now. Mm. I was like, oh, okay. So <laughs> NSF is the National Science Foundation. It's yeah. the primary um, uh, funding agency for the United States for basic science. Uh, and I, I think a lot of people... Or certainly me. I I I, lo- I absolutely loved my PhD supervisor, uh, Christina Ravello. Um, but after my PhD, I I had um, I just had lost a bit of confidence. I sort of mm. I had struggled with the transition g- with going into postdoc. Yeah. Uh, and she, uh, Maureen, uh, uh, basically was like, "You're going to do this. You're going to write this proposal." And I was like, "I don't think I'm ready." She's just like, "No, you're ready. You're gonna, you're going to do it." Um, so it's a little bit of tough love, but um, uh, I wrote this NSF proposal, a full proposal, and it ended up getting funding. Really? Uh, yeah. So I, I self-supported most of my postdoc um, with a with a grant, uh, and I think that that set me up for success for getting the the NERC independent. Well, I know that it set me up for yeah. success for getting the NERC independent research fellowship. I hope as well, it was clear so. that it really came from a place of like. It's hard to get those. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, no, it is. Yeah. I mean, the success rates yeah. is, are similar in the United States as they are in yeah. the UK. They're, it's, you know, 10 to 20 percent. You so. have to prepare for failure. You have to kind of expect yeah. it and like, well, this probably isn't going to go anywhere, but you have to spend months of your life. Yeah, you know, it's, it, it's, a, it's a not inconsequential amount of time, especially like, I think that most people probably end up spending a month at least on a proposal. Uh, and to go up against like 10 to 20 percent and have it fail is pretty discouraging. Um, yeah. and, um, and it's not, it wasn't the first time that I had, I had submitted, um, graduate, uh, or not graduate, um, postdoc fellowships on, on similar ideas before. So the, the ideas themselves were marinating for a little while oh, before I did the, the standard grant. But, that's good. Um, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Let, let them bake. Let them yeah, bake. exactly. It's, and it takes multiple iterations to kind of get, like, um, get things right. You yeah, know? for sure. And that's, that's part of why it's important to like support people for long enough, you know, develop people. If you want to develop somebody as a scientist, you have to support them long enough so that their ideas can bake and come to, yeah. and, and crystallize in some way and they can start writing, writing it down and writing a proposal. But it's not, yeah. uh, it's not something that happens in a year or even two years. You yeah. Know, it can, it I think it's, I think it's, that. I think it's really hard to accomplish anything in a year, especially if you're moving to a new institution. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, there was a there was a postdoc that was advertised, uh, I guess a couple of months ago, uh, where it was it was clear like somebody had had just like a little pot of money left from NERC, uh, and it was like a six month postdoc <laughs> or something like that. And I was like, this is ridiculous. There's no way. Like, no well, way. I, but you know, I think that there's there are a lot of people that are interested in in staying in academia, and and they will make. I think that the personal sacrifices that we expect for people to, to move for like a six month postdoc are, are, are quite high, but you know, maybe that would fit with somebody, but I, I find, I find short term postdocs really, um, exploitive. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. It's kind of, uh, it's, it's, uh, unless you find just the right person who that situation works for them. Um, but I guess the trouble is kind of expecting everybody to be able to jump through those hoops, right? To mm-hmm. say, well, uh, because I only have a year of funding, that sets this level of expectation of like, well, I'm only going to take people who can hop around the world constantly and never mm-hmm. put roots down anywhere and, mm-hmm. and, and, and just move from year to year, uh, which is not, that's not going to be suitable for everybody. And uh, yeah, that's, it's a really intense situation. It's something that I, I haven't, I haven't fully reconciled in my, in my head, but there's definitely some room for growth in terms of how, like, we socially treat uh, early career folks and 
I mean, I'm an early career person too, so I don't know if this is going to come across as whiny or stuff or, or something, but you know, it, it, uh, there are some problems, right? There are some problems with the, I, I know some of that uncertainty is just inherent and like there's a limited amount of money to go around the world and limited amounts of funding and uh, that, you know, various, you know, world governments are taking different approaches to, to funding and they can change every four or five years and so it's hard to get that level of long-term stability, but um, maybe maybe a really clear edge case that you and I could talk about is the use of adjuncts, mm-hmm. which there's been, you know, a lot of discussion mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, don't quote me on this. Well, it's going to be on the podcast, but you know, uh, I don't, I'm not going to quote a number because I don't remember what the number is. But somewhere I, st- I saw a statistic that in the U.S. anyway, this crazy high percentage of lecture courses are taught by adjuncts. Mm-hmm. And you know, in the U.S., these are folks who they don't have any job security at all. It's less than a year. You mm-hmm. know, it's just term to term, semester mm-hmm. to semester. They mm-hmm. don't have health insurance. Mm-hmm. Some of them are, you know, homeless. And no, that's no, not that's mm-hmm. real. That's yeah, like no, actually, yeah, actually yeah. homeless yeah. people uh, teaching, you know, college, yeah. college lecture courses, yeah. and um, it's it's insane to me. I mean, I don't have an answer, but it's like how can how can academia just look at that and and be okay with that? That yeah. can't be normal. That yeah. we, we can't let that be the status quo. Yeah. Uh, well, I think in especially in in places where. Um, there's this idea of, in, in fields where there's this idea of, or careers, I guess, this idea that what you're doing is very noble and that you have to do, have some measure of sacrifice. So like, you know, having the honor and ability to like teach um, college or something like that, you, you, you're this, this idea that you're supposed to sacrifice so much of yourself that you end up getting in these really exploitive um, situations like well this is this is what we can cobble together a semester of this one course and by the way it's the first time that you're teaching it and you have to come up with all new course materials uh and then you're going to have to drive in i I lived in san diego for a little while and there were a number of adjuncts and so they would do two courses in one um, community college and then another course at another university and another course in another um uh, university and then they'd all be teaching it like 0.2 0.2 times, so nobody God. had to give them part-time status, and nobody had to give them health insurance, uh, right? Okay. And on top of that, they're you know driving all over San Diego, which is terrible. Yeah. So You're stuck in traffic. Yeah. Spending tons on gas. Yeah, and so I don't. Yeah, I don't have a good answer for that either. Um, I've heard it's uh, well. When I say I've heard, I mean uh, this isn't my thought. Is is what I mean by that that. Culturally, it could be this extension of almost a monastic tradition of like, you know, to go into the academy, you're supposed to sacrifice, you know, all worldly pleasures and Mm. devote yourself to the Mm -hmm. study of the truth Mm. and to worship the book. (laughs) Mm. Like, Mm -hmm. that it is culturally somehow a continuation of that that sort of Mm -hmm. thing. And Mm -hmm. there's something to that. I mean, obviously, it's more complex, you know, culturally than that, but there is something to that idea of. You know, if you want this life of the mind and life of studying mm-hmm. something, that you should be giving up things, and mm-hmm. and it, it it's 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 tricky. I mean, when I, I did a, a, some, I was an instructor for a couple of years uh, teaching physics and astronomy, uh, and then while I was at Georgia Tech, I did I did do a little adjuncting on the side, mm-hmm. which now I can't decide if I was contributing to a problem. Mm-hmm. Maybe I was, and that's that's I'll. I'll I can own up to that if that's true, because at the time I was like, I need a little more money to support mm-hmm. my newborn kid mm-hmm. and, and family. So that was a choice I made based mm-hmm. on not having enough, you know, I needed to live in Atlanta and that was hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it can be in some places that it's an expensive city. Uh, not, I know not relative to some places, but anyway, so I was, and 
it, it was okay as a side job, but mm -hmm. I, I don't, it's not sustainable as like the main thing right. that you're, that you're doing. And the bit you mentioned about it being an honor and like a privilege, it, well, it, the tricky thing is it was like, I, I took it really seriously mm -hmm. and I was like, it, it is, it is an honor. It is a privilege to like be able to go and uh, teach people. I love teaching and I love the subject. I was teaching mathematics and kind of general science stuff, doing calculus and things. And it was, it was the best. And I really loved that feeling of helping people. But at the same time, you know, had that been my main employment situation, I would have been giving myself and putting myself out there like that and not, and, and at the same time I wouldn't have had health insurance and I wouldn't mm -hmm. have been able to support my family. Mm -hmm. That's such a bizarre mm -hmm. situation for a society to construct Yeah. <laughs> that, you know, hopefully people are, um, I don't know, we get it. I, I don't know what to do, but it's, uh, it, it, cause it almost feels like it's, it's stuck, but something's got to, get, something got to get, get shaken up here. Yeah. You know, my I, I, I've not had an opportunity to adjunct or really teach because a lot of the positions that I've had since um, grad school have mostly been at research institutions where there's very few opportunities for that sort of thing. Um, but even here, so I so I have this NERC Independent Research Fellowship. It was originally budgeted based on the fact that I had three years of postdoc experience. And a few months into my uh, my job here, I found out that my my appointment had actually been set as if I had had no experience. Oh. Um, the the powers that be had had essentially decided to give me a ten percent cut in my pay, <laughs> um, which I was upset about. Yeah. Um, and, and plus, U.S. PhDs are way longer than U.K. PhDs, so you would have already spent. <laughs> more time in the field than the average UK PhD. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, but when I brought this um, up to the attention of the powers that be, um, I I got a ton of excuses as to why it was said at that particular way. And, you know, oh, well, if we keep it this, at this level, you'll have more time, you'll have more money for travel or research <laughs> expenses. And, I, you know, I was just like, why are we having this discussion? You've essentially erased three years of experience. You've given me a 10% cut in my own grant. Yeah, yeah. This is and not, you... this is, this is, and, but it's supposed to be noble. You're supposed to want to give up 10% of your salary and not do things like pay for your apartment because you'll have more money to do science. You'll have more money to travel around and, and, and do your career building as, as necessary. What a tricky balance to like, to, to want to respect the fact that, yes, it is a privilege to work as a scientist, it is a privilege to do these things, but to also need to be able to stand up for yourself a bit and to say, and to, to push back against uh, things like that and to be your own kind of advocate. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe it's kind of, you know, the, the academic system has its own problem it's trying to deal with. You know, it's not necessarily structured intentionally to take advantage of people but just the way that it's set up it, it is doing a bit of that mm -hmm. and uh so maybe the answer is you, you have to push back against it a bit to keep in check to keep yeah. it in check like like you've done yeah and i get that's why unions are important too right you need the, that kind of collective yeah. power to be able to argue as a single yeah. single entity yeah and mm. i think that you bring up a good point is that um you know setting those boundaries and and advocating for yourself like the, I think part of the responsibility is that um, the people in power need to also take this up as a, as a cause because the people who are being exploited, the people who are being vulnerable, you know, it takes a lot of emotional energy to, to go up to the powers and be and say, like, actually, you're not treating me well mm -hmm. and um, I want it this way and this is actually what I deserve and this is what's actually important. So mm -hmm. it's it's the it's the powers that be have a responsibility of not just acknowledging that the culture is exploitive, but you know if you if you have one course 
that needs to be taught, is there a possibility to make sure that there's another course in the in mm. other terms that you right. give somebody in a, a full year of employment rather than just like three months or whatever? So um, we need some brave university presidents and provosts and things to say like, no, that's it. We're not gonna we're not gonna teach you know seventy percent of our lecture courses by adjuncting. We're gonna hire human beings and support them and and. If we need to make adjustments in other areas, we'll we'll just have to do that and to, mm-hmm. to value human lives, <laughs> yeah. to value human beings, and yeah. and it's <laughs> yeah. and, and I, you, the other point that you bring up is this is the strength of unions and, and unions are really important as well. Like, um, so um, I was originally in the University of California system mm-hmm. um, for my PhD and my undergrad, and during that time, um, the grad students unionized and also the the postdocs unionized, and actually because the the University of California system is so large. It was the largest, I think one of the first and the largest um, postdoc union, or at least the largest union, mm. postdoc union that it formed. And one of the things that they have is that all postdoc um, contracts have to be two years. All initial appointments have to be two years. Okay. Yeah. Um, and any renewal has to be at least a year after that. Mm. Um, so I think that that's important for providing um, job security for postdocs. But yeah. for the advisors, um, or the PI, the primary investigator, I think that also brings up a, a difficult point for them because how their grant their grant funding right, works and right. there are different structural issues with that as well. But like you said, if somebody has one year's worth of a, of money for a postdoc, um, well, what are they going to do with it? You know, if they can't employ somebody for two years, well, I guess what we're saying is maybe just don't don't advertise the one year postdoc and do something else with right. that money. Right, right, <laughs> or give it yeah, give yeah. it back to the funding agency or, or pivot it into a, a year of student salary yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. To um there are some specific I know there's like a in, in Switzerland to jump around to a completely different system and country for some reason. They do have a, a, a grant system where we just had a, a visitor here, Alexander Hellman who, uh, the, the grant is specifically to go travel to different places and spend you know a few months here, a mm, few months there. Mm-hmm. We're obviously not talking about that kind of system. Mm-hmm. That's something that is specifically and explicitly designed to like, mm-hmm. you're going to hop around with this. Mm-hmm. You're going to go from place to place mm-hmm. where that's, that's the expectation. But um, yeah, it's uh, that, that's, I think that's fine because you, that's very upfront about you know, you know what that is. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, okay. No, I like that point about that the people in charge have... A responsibility to push this issue as well, mm-hmm. and I know I, I have sympathy for, you know, their position as well. They're not an, that's not an easy job to have. You're trying to balance a hundred thousand different pressures from a hundred thousand mm-hmm. different areas, and I I don't know if the the, the optimal way to do that. But um, yeah, I, I think it would be really refreshing and encouraging to see like a crop of administrators come up and say, you know, we're gonna we're gonna value people more than new buildings. We're gonna mm-hmm. value people more than you know, naming this library after some rich donor, like mm-hmm. we're going to value, because um, I think, I, and I say this without knowing a ton about it, but just having observed it kind of from the outside, I, I was talking with, with an, uh, a more senior academic about it um, just a, a couple of nights ago, the idea that like uh, often politicians or donors, they want to have like a building with their name on mm-hmm. it, something they can bring mm-hmm. people to and point to and mm-hmm. say, that's my building. Mm-hmm. Which is fine if you build those things. It's it's okay, but then if you don't fund people to do the science and to you know, administer the mm-hmm. building and mm-hmm. to actually have the teaching and the the research 
happen in the building that's kind of pointless. It's just a shell of like a, mm -hmm. it's like a trophy that doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just so, uh, so something about we need to value people more and the human lives and human efforts and. Um, yeah, and you're, you're right, that's going to have to kind of propagate down, maybe from both directions, right? That maybe the folks in the bottom will push up and maybe the folks at the top will push down and mm -hmm. we'll meet in the middle if that analogy makes mm -hmm. any sense, yeah. Um, yeah, so you, Columbia, I really enjoyed that conversation, by the way, that was really fun. The, um, Columbia, and uh, then before that, was that was California? Yeah, so, so that was your first postdoc and then Colum uh, sorry Santa Cruz, California. I did my PhD in Santa Cruz California yeah. is what I was trying to say yeah, yeah Santa Cruz was your PhD yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so okay. I'm 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 born and educated in California so I did I did all my degrees um in California and then I left the nest um and moved to the east coast and now I'm here in, in England so yeah. yeah how was your PhD experience yeah I loved Santa Cruz I really yeah. loved Santa Cruz I loved um uh and I loved the 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 town itself was an interesting kind of quirky place. It's very like you can find um, it was a lot of like farm to table kind of culture in terms of really fresh food, really good food. Um, and also just, um, uh, you know, I would wake up and one of my really good friends from grad school and I would run along the ocean, mm. you know, at least three times a week. Um, and <laughs> there's just something really um invigorating about living by the ocean that I didn't really appreciate probably at the yeah. time. I'm a little envious of the folks at Scripps who get yeah. to work right next to it yeah. and just and look they, out they, the window they, and there it is. Yeah, they take their <laughs> lunch break and they go surfing for the day. But I, I think I totally it's part do. of like the the work-life balance is like having that quality of life there. And that's something that I feel like I've missed since leaving Santa Cruz in some ways. Yeah. To, to broadly overgeneralize and oversimplify things, I think the West like the western u.s has a better handle on that than maybe the eastern u.s does and uh england i'm not sure there are pockets i think it varies depending on you know where you are place to place so i think there so some folks do it some, some places do a pretty good job at that work-life balance um but about the you know the u.s stuff i guess that was part of my experience with it just observing over the years was like uh, so i went to i did my phd in colorado mm. and what i loved about that department was uh, everyone was pretty laid back and, and relaxed and they would go hike and they would go do you know, outdoorsy stuff and they would in, try to enjoy their lives but they also got really good science done they got mm -hmm. really good stuff done I think mm -hmm. I think it's you know what you're alluding to is like if you take care of yourself and you know spend some time doing something physical that you like mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't have to be running it could be something mm -hmm. and I say this as somebody who's really could stand to do more physical stuff. I'm not really a great example of that right now, but it is kind of broadly true that, like, yeah, if you do take care of yourself and do physical stuff, you'll probably do better work because you'll yeah. be more refreshed and yeah. you'll constantly be fighting your own body to make it produce the very basic output. <laughs> so, yeah. like, answering emails and getting up yeah. in the morning. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's really that's good to hear. Santa Cruz, is it... Um, so it's still in the southern part, right? But it's it's kind of it's in the central coast, so central it's just coast. south of San Francisco. But um, yeah, California has weird like what is considered Southern California, what's considered Northern right. California. So uh, even though the, the Bay Area is pretty much in the in the central part of California, it's considered Northern North, California. Yeah. And I think the divide <laughs> the divides a little bit more Santa Barbara, which is south of, of mm. Santa Cruz by I don't know an hour, hour and a half by by driving. Mm. Um, 
but yeah, it's um, Santa Cruz was great um, just for being on the coast, being by the ocean. I also really valued the the university itself and um, my the the lab group that I worked in with Christina Ravello. I think said we did really great science. Um, we were um, we were we were community. Um, yeah, and the community. It was, yeah, it yeah. was it was really good. I really enjoyed it. The community element is so important. Um, like a good cohort of students, for mm -hmm. example, you know, you're good, you're, you're PhD colleagues, that can make such a big difference, because mm -hmm. you, I guess what I found was, I probably learned on average more from them than I did the professors, just because I was spending a lot more time, mm -hmm. you know, working in problems and sets and stuff with mm -hmm. the students, and mm -hmm. uh, we would try to teach each other stuff, you know, mm -hmm. somebody would be really good at this type of problem, and somebody would be really good at this other type of problem, mm -hmm. and um, that, that can be so rewarding to be part of that, to be in that mix and to feel like you can make a contribution mm -hmm. and learn from other people. So mm -hmm. that's good to hear. I'm glad to hear that you had a good, yeah. a good experience like that. And it's, I think that um, that's one of the advantages of being a PhD student is that um, your cohort can be really important and, and fostering that kind of community is really um, important. Um, and I think that that's kind of one of the things that I feel like I've missed as an yeah. early career researcher is that... Um, other um, early career researchers are always very friendly and very open and you know happy to chat and like socialize but then they end up leaving you it's after or you end up leaving after like um you know six months or a year or something like that and it's i yeah. when i was a student you know I, I had friends who were maybe a year above me or a year below me uh and it was really devastating when they would leave in some ways and yeah, and, and it's sure. now as a as a postdoc it happens more frequently and i think that that's one of the in addition to just the contract precarity, I think that that's one of the, the things that I've kind of struggled with as a postdoc is have, not having that cohort kind of sense that you have when you're a student. You're totally right. And I think that is part of why, you know, I feel a bit like, I really like where I am here now. And I feel a bit like attached to that and mm -hmm. a little bit clingy to that. Mm -hmm. It's probably not 100% emotionally where I need to be, but it, I do, I, I feel like a little clingy about it because I, I like the folks I'm working with. Mm -hmm. I don't want to lose that. I like this community that I'm a part of. So yeah, mm -hmm. I think you're totally right that like when you move, you, you, you get, you might get so used to having that as a PhD student, this kind of community and you move somewhere new and you know, your group might be fine. Your advisor might be fine. And like you said, people might be per perfectly friendly, but you, you don't get integrated into it in the same way that you do when you're up with a bunch of PhD mm -hmm. students. Like in the U S anyway, you know, you still could be taking courses together and doing homework sets together mm -hmm. and stuff like that and bonding, mm -hmm. bonding over that and mm -hmm. you know, being in the mathematical trenches. Um, yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. And I, I think there are organizations that try to combat that. Like in Cambridge, there's the, uh, postdoc, postdocs mm -hmm. at Cambridge center. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they try to have events and to get people together. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just professionally different because people are in different places in their lives. And they might have partners, they might have children. So yeah. yeah, it's the, and the thing that forms attachments is, is like frequent uh, interactions, right? Like mm -hmm. even just in passing is, is what helps facilitate friendships. And you, you know, being a student is really set up for that because you have classes, because you're working on things, you have to go to the lab really frequently. But if you're a postdoc, you're Oftentimes you're struggling a bunch of, or you're struggling with a bunch of different uh, asks, like being in the lab, writing a paper, and the 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 complexity. It's it's not it's I don't want to say that it's more complex. It's just the the diversity of things that you need to accomplish, and therefore like the interactions that you might have with people, the frequency of the interactions might be a little bit more limited. Hmm. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So speaking of that kind of culture, um, does your work involve? Do you go out to sea? 
I do. Yeah. Yeah. Seagoing paleo oceanographer. Yeah. So I've been on on two separate month long cruises and a couple other um, cruises here or there. Yeah. Mm. I think I strongly suspected you did because I think on your webpage, which I briefly checked out, you do have a picture of yourself in a hard hat yeah. on the ship deck. So like, well, yeah. she's at least she stood on one. I yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so two month long cruises. Yeah. And um, what were you? What were you up to? What were you? It was all. It was tropical Pacific stuff. Okay. Um, one of them was a cruise uh, that went um, kind of at the Galapagos. We were coring the um, Carnegie Basin and the Panama Basin, uh, and then the other cruise that we did was. Um, uh, looking at the Line Islands, which are a set of um, atolls and islands just south of Hawaii on the equators, uh, on the equator, because there's all there's um, not a lot of information that's from the su- the Central Pacific, uh, Central Tropical Pacific. There's not. It turns out that the Pacific is very deep, um, so there's not a lot of um, there's not a lot of uh, and because it's very deep and also because the water masses are very old, it ends up being very acidic. So if you core from the very bottom of the Pacific Ocean, the, the probability that you're going to um, collect the, the type of um, fossils that I work on is pretty low. Really? Um, okay. Yeah, hmm. so you, you, you want to try and uh, core places like atolls, like the Line Islands. Hmm. Um, so that was uh, one of the other cruises that I went on. Oh, so you're saying that down at the... The, those depths. Yeah, the, that there's more. There's a lot of dissolution. Yeah, so there's like, a lot of okay. dissolution. It's very acidic water. There's a horizon part. for that, right? There's a line. The for CCD that, yeah. and the lysocline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the below that, the dissolution of, is really strong. So you yeah. won't find a lot of yeah, sediments and shells yeah. necessarily yeah. like that. Okay, okay, yeah. So you need shallower water. Oh, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that before. Um, so that coring. So you're on the ship and you have to get a sample of mud and dirt mm-hmm. and stuff from mm-hmm. the atoll. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? What's the, what's the process I, like? You know, it, it, I, it feels like a little, um, it feels a little barbaric in some ways. It's, <laughs> it seems very simplistic, but essentially what you do is you take a piece of PVC pipe and you attach it to a string and then you throw it down to the bottom of the ocean and then you just pull it back up. Um, that's a really simplistic, but um, we have... Uh, well, not necessarily. So there, there's a couple different ways that you can get um, sediment core. One of it's um, uh, it's kind of this cage. We call it a multi-core. And the idea is that you want to preserve the very top of the, the sediment water in- interface. It, so you have this cage that goes down to the bottom of the ocean. And then this inner part of the cage drops down very slowly. Mm. Uh, and then you bring that back up. There's a, there's a, like a, arm that snaps closed so that you you get maybe like usually about 60 centimeters of of sediment that gets pulled back up um another thing that you can do is uh, called a gravity core which is basically you take a meter of you're right there buds (laughs) waking up Uh, waking up um you take about a meter of um pvc pvc pipe and you literally do just throw it over the um the boat you take it down to just before you hit the the bottom of the ocean and then you kind of like let it fall yeah. gently into the so into the sediment that's the gravity part that's, that's the gravity part let, yeah gravity do it <laughs> yeah and then um uh the other thing that you can do is you can do piston coring so you have um mm. you'll uh you know set the coring in and then you'll actually use a piston to force it into uh the sediment and in that in that case if you're using piston coring you can get um about 20 to 40 feet of, of sediment core. Um, and then the, the other option is I work a lot on the, um, there's a international consortium called the Inter, um, International Ocean Discovery Program. It's had a couple different names. Um, 
but what they do is they, they actually do drilling um, for marine sediment and they, uh, they essentially use the same um, kind of technology that's used for um, gathering oil for oil exploration. exploration. They actually drill into um, the sediment to, and, and get those cores out. So, yeah, I've not been on one of those cruises yet, but um, okay, yeah. I've done piston coring and gravity coring and multi-coring. So once you get the sediments, you've got it on deck, mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you do with it? Do you just haul it back to your lab, basically, or is there, are there things on deck you can do? Not, um, not on deck, but on the ship. Yeah, so uh, one of the things that we'll do is we'll, um, we'll usually process the core, so we'll, we'll uh, split the core and then describe it. Um, so we'll, you cut it, so it's a cylinder, and you yeah. cut it like... You just long, use a hacksaw, or not a hacksaw, but yeah, so you, you just... Um, you just split along the diameter. Well, you'll so you'll cut it up if you if you have a twenty foot core or something like that. You'll cut it up into you know change my units. So you cut it up into meter and a half sections. Yeah. And then those meter and a half sections you'll cut a long ways yeah. along the diameter. Yeah. So you get about uh, half cylinders at the exactly. end. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then when you uh, after you've cut them open, you'll um, describe them. So uh, you'll describe the color. Um, you know, are there a lot of fossils available? Um, is it mostly silt or is it mostly sand? Um, you'll also um, pick a, a small amount of a sample and actually look at uh, look at it under the microscope and see you know how many diatoms are in there, how many foraminifera are in there. Look at the composition. Um, is it do you, are you seeing volcanic ash or anything like that? Um, and so that's the basic processing that we do with the cores on on the deck. And then after that. Um, Sometimes they'll, well, also sometimes they'll get scanned. Uh, so uh, you'll look at, um, you know, the aluminum to calcium or magnesium calcium mm. uh, of the core. Sometimes you can okay. use that to, to create a stratigraphy. So scanned, you put them in a um, something that can give you the spectrum, I guess, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. see what spikes you get mm -hmm. um, from. You shine mm -hmm. some radiation on it and you see what spikes you get back. Exactly. You can do yeah. some chemical fingerprinting as to what elements are in, in there. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, oh, so what did you say after scanning? They're scanning and then you... Uh, um, and then that's kind of it. Sometimes of you'll it. take samples um, while you're on, on the ship. It sort of depends on how fast you need to process the cores. Um, so are you going to be on the next site location in two hours? Right, you know, that'll right. dictate how quickly you process the cores or what kind of processing of the cores that you do. Yeah. Um, do you, at the same time, do you get, uh, do you do... CTD stuff. Do you we also do. get simple, yeah. you know, temperature, salinity, and yeah. water samples and things. Yeah. So, so we do. Um, we do CTD. We do water samples. I've done filtering on boats as well to mm -hmm. look at the organic uh, composition uh, throughout the water column. Okay. Cool. Yeah. yeah. I could help with the CTD part, but you'd have to teach me the other <laughs> the other bits. <laughs> well, <laughs> filtering water is, is uh, we have we had this apparatus that um, it had a. Um, a parasaltic pump that would just like pump through the water through the filters and then you have after that you have the these you know usually they're usually green but sometimes they're like yellow they look like baby poop actually um of whatever organic sludge has just been forced through the filter and then um then you can analyze that using um, various organic chemistry techniques to do the isotopes and stuff, I guess you need to get that to a lab here, yeah. or so, do you, like BGS or somewhere, or wherever you do your isotope. Uh, so the Stable Isotope Lab is actually, um, I use um, the Godwin Lab, okay. uh, so that has a bunch of different stable isotope um, uh, capabilities, but I just do the carbon and the oxygen for it, I know. She just sort of like rolls around <laughs> until she finds her most comfortable <laughs> position. Um, and... Uh, uh, but those, that actually is probably the most time-intensive part is um, 
you, you have a sediment sample and then what you do is you wash it. So everything that's um, greater than 63 microns um, gets saved as a coarse fraction. And then everything that's smaller than 63 microns gets saved as a fine fraction. Um, but yeah. you actually have to pick through the so, coarse fraction. There's a name for that, right? Where you just, you have a cutoff, like a, a filter size. Yeah. It's very, uh, it's, it's pragmatic. Uh, operational, that's the word yeah. I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And operational usually means like, well, there's... We've been maybe, doing this forever, yeah, so... There's maybe not like a... Uh, there could be a little theoretical basis for this, but it's also just a decision that someone made. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to do it this yeah. way. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so you're doing the filtering and separ separating out. Yeah, but that happens in the lab. That doesn't usually happen in the in the, the boat on, like, mass scale. Yeah. Um, so to get your neodymium isotopes, you probably can't do that on... No, no, you know, no. You so to... um, what you, for, well, the neodymium isotopes, you can do it a couple different ways. Uh, sometimes you can find fish teeth within the sediment, oh. um, and the neodymium is, is on the fish teeth. Really? So not the, it ends up, um, it's not the signal that while the fish are kind of like alive, it's when those fish teeth become part of the sediment, they, they record what the neodymium was that it was um, flowing over them. Is it this, um, so uh, Rowan Whittle, who's a, paleontologist was on the show last time and uh, she mentioned this idea of replacement is it that that like some you know as a I don't know what I'm talking about mm -hmm. but you know so oh, oh, but you're saying it's not like replacement it's more like they, they somehow record the signal of yeah the so it, it's so um, it incorporates it into the tooth yeah exactly um, and then uh, the other thing else is, is if you look at the another way to look at the neodymium is the as the oxide coatings of forams so forams themselves are made out of um, calcium carbonate um, and then uh, when they when they settle into the sediment, um, you also you get these oxide precipitates on the outside of the shells, uh, and so that has the neodymium signature. So oxide precipitate is reacting with oxygen, and something's growing on the outside as a result of that. Is that a simple way to say um, oxide precipitate? <laughs> it is. A, it is a precipitate of like manganese or. Uh, uh, magnesium oxide or some some yeah. iron oxide okay. of some sort, yeah. um, and there's a there's a trace amount of neodymium that's incorporated into those uh, uh, into those oxides as well. Oh, okay. So there's some oxidation going on, and in the process, it's incorporating some of the neodymium from the surrounding marine environment. Okay, okay, mm -hmm. that's cool. I got yeah. that. Okay. And so, um, but the, the the hard part for processing those sediments is that um, there's I think there's something like 90 different species of planktonic foraminifera and, and, and so um, forams that live at the surface of the ocean. Uh, mm -hmm. And then uh, many, 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 many more different um, species of, of benthic foraminifera, so foraminifera that live at the, live at the bottom of the yeah. ocean. Yeah. Um, but it's specifically because they're all different species, they have different ways of, of, of recording a chemical signal. Um, so you'll want like one type of a foram. So you basically you wash the sediment, you you look at it underneath the microscope, and I say that's sort of like equivalent of like looking for all the border collies uh, in <laughs> in a sample where yeah. you've got like Boston Terriers and Dalmatians and and German Shepherds like all over, and mm. you're just you're just picking out the border collies because you know scientifically something about how the border collie uh, incorporates neodymium into its right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. so. Um, that ends up being probably the most time-intensive part of, of of paleoceanography is processing the samples and looking for the for the very specific mm. species that you're interested in, um, and that uh, I've spent many an hour uh, picking forams with a microscope, um, and then after after you have uh, enough of the, the the type of forams that you want to work on, you then take it into the laboratory for geochemical mm. analysis, which I, which actually ends up being probably the the easier part, or it's a, it's not. 
it, they're different, but it, it's less time intensive in some ways. Mm. Um, You're kind of making me want to do paleoceanography, which is surprising to me because you know, so so far I've always kind of said like, ah, no, I'm, I'm going to stick to the modern ocean. That's mm. that's fine. That's good for me. But yeah, no, it sounds. Uh, I, I think what got me interested was the idea that. Um, that you need to have that intimate knowledge of yeah this specific species has this reaction and incorporates this way and therefore we can use that to make a proxy for this mm-hmm. there's this, this really kind of lovely fascinating chain uh, this you know logical chain that feels so creative to me it feels like where did that come from <laughs> like how did that how did someone you know go yeah. from here's some water and to you know, the the and, yeah. and stuff and sludge to the this beautiful you know logical chain that you're talking about it's just just yeah. amazing to me and I know it involved a ton of people over a long period of time yeah. I think that's one of the things that that I, I I love so much about science is seeing those connections yeah, yeah. Well, I mean it's kind of analogous with the with modern oceanography right like before you would just like throw a what is it the um, XTD off this the the side of the boat. Well, and, if you go back far enough, it was just like a bucket. Yeah, <laughs> just a lower bucket off yeah, the side. Yeah, yeah. And now, <laughs> like you have remote sensing, and you have satellites, and you have because of those um, direct measurements, you can make you can extrapolate and have these giant data sets, right? Mm. And so I think that that's what um, one of the things that um, that I've been struggling with with a uh, with a paper that I'm trying to write right now is. Um, sometimes there's this disconnect between modern oceanography and paleoceanography because mm. paleoceanography has like all of these different errors and there there are ways that we're able to look at data in ways that we're not that aren't um, analogous to how you might define it in the modern so one mm. of the things that i'm really interested in is under- understanding how the thermocline has changed through time and the thermocline is the um this uh layer of rapid temperature change um, from the surface ocean, um, the warm surface ocean to the cold deep ocean. Yeah. And so and that layer is deeper in the tropics and tends to be shallower in the high latitudes right, typically. Yeah, right. Yeah. And there's also a difference between if you look at the western Pacific versus the eastern Pacific, it's mm-hmm. very deep in the western Pacific and very shallow in the eastern Pacific. And that depth of the thermocline is, is one of the reasons that you have a really um, coupled ocean um, atmospheric system yes. uh, in, in the tropics. So understanding how that thermocline depth has changed through time can be really important for understanding things like atmospheric circulation or um, the biological productivity in the Eastern Pacific. Um, so I'm ch- this in this particular paper, I'm trying to reconstruct the depth of the thermocline in the past. And so uh, one of the reviewer comments was um, essentially you know, in, there's a bunch of different ways that you can actually define the thermocline today. Yeah. Uh, one of the ways that you can do it is you can look at um, uh, the 20 degree isotherm, isotherm. So where is it 20 degrees? Um, in if you look at the mm. surface part of the ocean, and that's where we're going to define our thermocline. Another way that you can do it is you can look at the maximum uh, change in temperature with depth, so yeah. dtdz. That feels um, more natural to me. Yeah, it's, it's a change, so let's yeah. use the gradient to right. define. But the, you're really the, you're really looking at the entire layer of the thermocline, right? Yeah. So the depth is just being defined as to where that slope is greatest, right? right? But the entire thermocline is actually a large layer. <laughs> There's right? no line. There's no like yeah. don't go and like yeah. there it is. There's yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a layer. And yeah, it's an arbi- right. it's kind of an arbitrary it's, decision as yeah. to how you define it, right? It but is, when you're looking yeah. at big data sets like that arbitrary decision of DTDZ is, is important because then you know you can look at it globally like, well that's the depth of the thermocline. Yeah. Um, but the limitation with the with the study that I'm looking at is that I'm using um, 
different types of forams that live in the surface of the ocean. And it turns out that they don't just live at like 20 meters depth, mm. right? They live at, they, they kind of prefer, you know, different amounts of light, different amounts of, um, uh, you know, nutrients or something like that, different amounts of food availability, and they'll, they'll move around in the ocean based on that. Mm. Um, so, you know, where do you define DTDZ when yeah. you have a ton of variability they're in these reconstructions? They're not just a physical tracer, you know, they're not just hanging out, being, yeah. being, being, being physics-y for you. Yeah. yeah. They have their own lives <laughs> to, yeah. to live. Yeah, and, and that varies based on what the ocean conditions are, right? So I, th- I, I, I think that that's kind of one of the, one of the problems. It's interesting, though. It's, it's, it just requires conversations, right? Like a modeler or a data person will be like, oh, it'd be really nice to, you know, figure this out. And like, well, we can't really do that, but this is what we can do. Yeah. Um, so. yeah, it's a, the ocean is a continuous thing, and all of our decisions to define layers and things, they have to have some fuzziness to them because the ocean is a continuous, right. rapidly changing fluid. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So yeah, the idea of having... Uh, I think that's surprising. Sometimes, you know, you go to a, a talk, and you know, I've heard criticisms at the ends of talks when somebody's like, you know, you didn't use exactly the same definition of mode water that I like, so that's not really mode water. Right. It's like, it feels a bit arbitrary. It's I mean, a little this bit is, of a semantic issue, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. That we're, we're never, you know, that it can't be a specific temperature. Like you said, it has to be something structural, something, mm-hmm. how do things change? And, mm-hmm. you know, even that might lack a, a super simple, clean description. But uh, I kind of like that too. I like that challenge of that. That's that's our physical system. It doesn't have these super clear boundaries. Mm-hmm. You know um, that it's uh, more of a continuous changing fluid. Do you know this um, this uh, famous Anand Nanadeskan paper from '99, looking at the what controls the depth of the thermocline? Have you seen that one? This paper. I, I don't think I have. I'll have to show you that. Okay. okay I'll show you that for sure. And uh, then my, uh, to, to be selfish and plug myself for a minute, my dissertation was basically taking the time derivative of that and looking at the transients uh, of that. okay. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there are other folks who have also, um, also worked on that. Yeah. Um, at, 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 uh, was it a particular was, area um, or just globally? It was just, it's like a super simple idealized model. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll show you briefly, okay. you know, after the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause, like, but um, I... I got lucky because I happened to be working on that at this, the, the same time that other folks uh, around the, the world were. You know, it was just like that. Apparently, it was mm. just time for that question to get mm. addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> there's a, a, a PhD student. She's graduated now and has, has moved on to other places. Um, it's uh, Leslie Allison. Yeah, we, we scared each other because we were both doing our PhDs at the same time. And uh, we didn't know anything about each other. We didn't know what yeah. we were working on. Yeah, yeah. And about halfway through our respective PhDs, we learned of each other, and we yeah. learned that we were doing similar they, work. Yeah, really yeah. similar. We were both yeah. doing that kind of time derivative of yeah. the Desicon. So we had a brief, you know, it didn't take long—a brief moment of kind of going, "Oh no." Yeah, yeah. But when we sat down and actually looked at our approach, you know, yeah. it, was, it was different enough, and yeah. we were, that, that we both were able to make. You know, a contribution to that yeah. body of work, and so that that was fine. That yeah. felt, that felt good, and I I guess um, I think broadly that's what seems to happen. You know, we kind of might get freaked out about being getting scooped or getting somebody yeah. else doing something before yeah. we can do it, and you know, people are worried about that because they they do need papers and citations and stuff yeah. to get jobs and stuff. But in the end, I think you know nobody's going to take exactly the same approach. Yeah, and we shouldn't be so hung up on like um, you know the the idea that. Well, because this has been done already, it's not worth doing again. Right. You know, you you should yeah you should 
if you have time and money, you know, you should do it and try it your slightly different way. And even if you don't get dramatically different results, right. arguably you should be able to publish that too, even if it's right. similar to somebody else's work because right. we're, we need to document that. And reproducibility right. is a good thing. So yeah, if, yeah, yeah. if multiple people can come to broadly the same conclusions using slightly different methods, and yeah. that's robust. Yeah. Like you said, when you're talking about your multi-proxy approach, you know, those are all slightly different ways of looking at the physical system. And if they line up, that's a nice thing. Yeah. Your puppy's asleep again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that, um, just on to your, to your question about, or the issue of like being scooped or something Mm, like that, like people converge on good questions because they're good questions. Right. And, um, yeah, it's, it, it does reproducibility is, is always good. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Like people converge on good questions and then there, there are just places and times when okay, it's time for the community to deal with this topic, whatever mm-hmm. that topic is, because now we have enough evidence or now we have the computational tools that we need to deal with this. And um, yeah, you'll never get rid of that competitive pressure entirely, but I think it's, it's I, I, like, I like the idea of being more collaborative and supportive and that we're all adding something. Um, so Taka Ito had this analogy where he said, well, we're all just putting pebbles on a pile, so just walk up and put your pebble on the pile and don't worry too much <laughs> about it, and somebody else will come put, put their pebble on the pile. And um, I try to keep that kind of mental model in, in mind when I'm thinking about, yeah, don't worry too much you know, about getting scooped and don't worry too much about... Um, it, it is a legitimate pressure, but you got to find some way to balance it. Or for, for me, anyway, I'll just I'll go crazy if I worry about that too yeah. much. Yeah, yeah. If I stress out too much about that. Um, yeah. So it's um, so growing up in California, we didn't talk about that a ton. Like, um, so were you? How, how was how was growing up in California? I guess is a were you in a smallish town or a big no? Town? I like, was you know, a, so. well. So I I am from this town in the Central Valley called Stockton, California. Yeah. It's about I don't know, 60, 70 miles east of, of San Francisco. Uh, so it's close enough that I felt the eighty nine earthquake, mm. um, but far enough that it's just it's a very different community. Um, so it's it's mostly agricultural. Um, so it's a bit of a commuter town in some ways, or at least when I was growing up, it was people would either um, drive or people's parents would drive to, to Sacramento or they would drive to, to San Francisco for work. Um, but they would kind of have their little suburban um, houses in, in Stockton. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. But it's, uh, it's, I think it's something like the 43rd or the 46th largest city in the United States. So it's not <laughs> tiny. Um, it was it, when I was growing up. It had maybe two hundred fifty thousand, okay. three hundred, yeah. three hundred thousand people. Yeah. So it's it was quite big. That's big enough to have like a theater and to have like stuff happen at the theater, for yeah. example, or you yeah. know, concerts. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. We had concerts. There's a um, and uh, we had a, we had a, a a civic theater that would have things. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was. Um, so that was, um, that's kind of where I grew up. Um, it was a really diverse community. It's got a lot of different um, uh, uh, populations. Um, we had a lot of Vietnamese, a lot of Filipino, uh, Filipina, um, a lot of Mexican Americans as well. Um, and uh, yeah. in school as well, in school, mm-hmm. in schools, yeah. like you had a good kind of mixture of people from different places. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, at least, so I went to a private school from kindergarten to eighth grade, um, and then I went into public school for high school, and so mm-hmm. yeah, it was a very, that was probably, it was a very stark difference between the private school, which was mostly, um, mostly 
Catholic and it was mm-hmm. um, mostly Italian and mostly Irish and I'm mm-hmm. neither of those uh, <laughs> going to um, just sort of like general po- population uh uh, you know what what actually Stockton looked like demographically. Yeah. Um, so that was an interesting. Um, it, it sounds like probably there was an adjustment period. Yeah, there was an adjustment, but it's, you know it was it was really enriching. Like I, um, uh, I, you know I you know when I think that that you know when you're growing up you kind of live in a bubble in many ways. Like especially when you're younger, um, and then you you sort of have. Um, a broader experience and then you, you learn about how there, how other people have grown up, how, how they, how they've experienced life. And then, uh, it, that was sort of, it was an interesting experience for me going into high school. And then you have a similar experience when you go to, to college, at least in the United States. Like I think, um, there was the, uh, there was a study that I, that I read recently, like the, the, the single most important thing that you can do to, to, um, improve your tolerance for how other people live or how other people do different things is going to college. Mm. Um, and so that improves people's um, ability just to sort of like uh, coexist. But that's also a big, um, that's a big barrier of participation, right? Like not everybody gets to go to college. Um, hmm. So Yeah, that's a good point. Well, that, that made me think of the, we talked about the PhD cohort idea. You know, mm-hmm. if you have these other students, you're figuring out how to live around them, you're figuring out how to work with them, and mm-hmm. you you know, go through the, the trenches together of doing homework and assignments and stuff and studying together. And yeah, you get to see people and you get to kind of realize in a real concrete way that like, oh yeah, they're just people, like they're just humans and that they're not actually going to be that different from, from me and the, you know, I mean, yeah, okay, there could be cultural differences and things, but that's not really that big. It's not as big as, uh, you know, one might think, having grown up in a bubble, mm. you know, as well. I grew up in a bubble in the southeast, and so it uh, t- took a while for me to see outside of that and to get much exposure outside of that and mm. to you know, chip away the uh, edges of the bubble. I don't know why in the analogy the bubble is now something you can chip away, but that's that's fine. Um, burst. You know, burst. Burst the bubble. Well, yeah, slowly burst. Because it's not all at once, but yeah. yeah no, anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, you're right. So that experience of you know living and working with people from different backgrounds is so useful, and it's one of the. I mean, it is one of the privileges we get in academia as well. You know, I, I, we get to work with people from all over the all over the place, and we get to you know have this international culture that is pretty similar from place to place. I mean, you know, here we are, you know, in the UK, and mm-hmm. you know, even though we both you know grew up in a different system. I mean, I wonder if you'd agree with me that, like, academically, the academic culture is pretty similar. There might mm. be different, like, work-life balance sorts mm. of aspects, but, yeah, the academic culture is, is at least in the West, is, mm-hmm. you know, pretty homogenous. Mm-hmm. You can go to Paris, and it's similar, and you can mm-hmm. go to Germany, and it's similar, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so I think that's a privilege we have as well. But I, I like your point about it also being a barrier. Mm-hmm. Like, that is, that is, I guess that's what the other side of a privilege is, is there's a barrier there for mm-hmm. the, not everybody's getting to participate mm-hmm. in, in this. Mm-hmm. And that's unfortunate. And, you know, it's it's, um, it's uh, something that I don't have a good solution to, although you, it, it's arguably, you could arguably make an, an uh, say, like, well, maybe we should be providing that experience for more people. Maybe we could be investing in that kind of experience for, you know, a larger percentage of folks mm-hmm. who, who want to do it um yeah so i um i want to get your thoughts on something real quick i know mm-hmm. we've been going a while thank you for mm-hmm. this has been great oh, yeah. but um so 
and we don't you don't have to answer if you don't want to but it's just something that's been rattling around in my head and yeah. based on our conversation a minute ago I wanted to get your thoughts on it so there was a conversation on Twitter that um, about titles mm-hmm. about I don't know uh, the idea being like so that the person arguing it said you know you should be using your title you know, mm-hmm. don't don't if you're a doctor don't throw it away mm-hmm. if you're a professor don't throw it away mm-hmm. um, I mean yeah you can make some distinctions between you know times when you're being a professional versus time when you're times when you're maybe mm-hmm. not being a professional mm-hmm. but don't casually discard your your title mm-hmm. because then when other folks want to do that you know maybe from a minority community maybe uh, you know other folk other like people who are not well represented statistically in the then it, it puts them in an awkward position of like mm-hmm. no I want you to call me doctor because mm-hmm. I, I want you to understand that Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I'm just asking you to react to that. I know, but I don't know if you have any any kind of thoughts on that. Well, no. I think I think that um, that was, yeah, that was an interesting discussion that happened about about titles, and I I don't know what the origin of it was, but the the one the one that I saw was that um, there was a researcher uh, who uh, felt uncomfortable with people using their titles. It mm-hmm. was like their airline. Uh, you know, oh. mile card or something oh, right. like that, or you know, just having doctor or whatever mm. on their their airline ticket, um, and uh, various people came up with arguments of like, well, actually, that is important because you know there are women of color who were trying to intervene on a, a medical emergency, but because they hadn't had their title, they weren't they weren't treated with the authority to actually um, be of assistance when oh, they were wow. clearly trained, cool. and so um, that's awful. Yeah, it's terrible, and it's and, and and I think that it does have to do with um, with authority, right? Like if you're if you're part of a majority community where your authority isn't really questioned regularly, a title isn't necessarily important to you. But mm-hmm. if you're a person of color or a white woman, and your authority is constantly questioned, having that title gives you a little bit of a legitimacy mm-hmm. and gives you the authority um, that you've earned in some or I mean you've earned that title. Um, so I'm. I'm perfectly okay with people using titles. Yeah, and I yeah. my frustration is that I, um, especially having, mo- I found that person's comment a little disingenuous because mm. um, having moved to the UK from the United States, I would say that in the UK titles are very important. Like, yeah, yeah. Every single piece of mail that I get is is is. I have a title and then my name. I don't have a title in the United States when I get my mail yeah. or like on my credit card or things <laughs> like that, right? And yeah, so right. it's it, titles actually are really important in the UK. And so yeah. for somebody to say like, oh, that's not important, it's like actually it is, right? Mm-hmm. Like if I if I'm asked for my title, I'll give doctor because that is my title. And I have had there's been there have been you know numerous occasions where people default to Ms. because I or Mrs. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Um, because I am a woman of a certain age, therefore I must be married. <laughs> not married, and that's a presumption that you've made. Even mm. though I've given you my title, I've, I've explicitly told you what my title is, mm. and you've defaulted to something that is not my title, that oh, will no. never be my title, because I will never be Mrs. Ford. That was right, my mom, right, right. right? I will never be Mrs. Ford. Yeah. So I, you know, mm. I think that, that, and I think that it's hard to, I think it's hard to acknowledge when you're part of a majority group, um, that that they might have these experiences, that you might have these issues, especially for something like whether or not you're married or you're not married. Like right. every boy over the age of I think 14 is the cutoff is is called Mister versus you know I've been called Miss, I've been called Mrs, I've been called Ms. 
um, and sometimes I get called doctor. So there's not like this um, variety of ways that that you that a man right. can necessarily be. Um, and they all have they all mean something. They have some weight behind them in right. some way, and they have some. Right. You know, it's. Um, I'll admit occasionally, uh, in terms of the misses and miss. Um, sometimes I, I probably slip up on that because sometimes I can't remember if a person's mm. married or not, mm. and that's not that's not as mm. important as the you know other distinction we were talking about. Mm. But that that awkwardness can come there. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll be honest. I, I love that reaction, by the way. That was really good, and I, I'm glad I asked you because I think I've been trying to digest that argument, and I feel like you've gotten much farther than I have in terms of distilling it, you know, into something mm -hmm. concrete like that. So mm -hmm. I, I appreciated that. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I'll be honest. I I kind of like having my title on my you know cards and credit card and my mail and stuff. It's like a nice little um, it's a nice little validation of like okay, you worked hard. You know, you you did it. You, mm -hmm. you jumped through the the hoops that we mm -hmm. asked you to jump through, and now you know, you, you can have that. Um, I I think I'm a pretty casual person. I don't really mind if people use my my first names, but uh, I think uh, my first names first name. Um, <laughs> but I guess what that argument. Another side of that argument that was interesting was like, oh, well, if I'm a, a teacher, if I'm a professor, um, you know, how, how do you, uh, I think a lot of professors, especially in the U.S., kind of want people to be more casual with them and to use their first name. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, what I appreciated about that argument was, like, well, maybe, maybe think twice about being that casual on that level if you're teaching the course um, yeah, for the reasons that you just mentioned. So I really appreciated that. Did did we want to um, do we want to talk about the study that you did a little bit? Yeah, we, if you we, yeah, if you want to, that's yeah, that's. Um, we did a little bit with Cameron, yeah, so Cameron yeah. summarized it a little bit. Yeah. But what um, maybe maybe like the story behind it, like what got you interested in, what sent you in that direction, and what got you interested in, like could we could we do this? Um, well, I think that um, I think this has sort of been a. Oh, and maybe I should mention the study we're talking about is the AGU, looking at uh, gender bias in the AGU. Um, Talks versus posters, assignments. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I guess the motivation for that particular study, essentially looking at speaking opportunities between men and women, um, was there's there's kind of this. Uh, I think if you're a woman in science, you often go into these conferences or you go into these panels, and there's even a um, a website called like you've got an all male panel or something like that. It's <laughs> it's it's um and it's got uh, the Hoth, you know. Um, <laughs> Was this, is, it's not Dennis Hoffman. What is his name? Uh, uh, Night Rider guy. But anyways, it's, uh, anyway, uh, it's a cultural thing. But um, you have this experience. Was it? Sorry, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Doesn't it's not important. It's but um, <laughs> it is kind of this cultural thing where you you can go you go into a talk or you go into a session, and it's it's usually led by all men or or even sometimes I've gone into an AGU session that has been. Um, convened by um, some of my colleagues that, that are in the same age as me and there's there's one token white woman and you sit in there and you're like this does not represent our field in any way mm. shape or form yeah. Yeah. but you know with a lot of things like um, racist or sexist behavior or you know biases I should say is that you know if all of these interactions are one interaction so mm. it's hard to attribute one interaction or one event um, you know was that you know, racial bias or was that a, a, a sexual bias um, but the the nice thing about this particular data set is that um, there were multiple interactions that you could actually statistically analyze um, and and it was it was part of that experience of going uh, well one of the things that I did a few years ago actually is that so my colleague Petra Deacons who's also on the study 
Um, she was secretary of AGU for the paleoceanography, paleoclimatology section. Um, and her co-secretary, or her assistant secretary, I should say, um, and, and he had, his wife had a, a medical emergency, so he wasn't able mm. to come and help her. So she, um, and the, the meeting was in D.C. where they organize everything, because that's where the American Geophysical Union headquarters are. Um, so she asked me to come down. I was like, I really need somebody to help me to mm. do this. So I went down and, and organized the paleoceanography section with her. And, I, you know, it was the first time where I actually looked across the paleoceanography section and, and looked at, you know, who was convening sessions and who, who was being given talks. And there was, it, it just wasn't a very diverse set of voices that were being heard. But again, we hadn't really looked at it statistically. Yeah, yeah. And so... Yeah, that's a good point that, like, if you're just nose-to-nose with a particular program, you, know, it, you, you can't necessarily get a good sense of, like, oh, is this, is this biased or... Or is this uh, more of an outlier in terms of the distribution of things? Yeah, you need you need that big perspective, right? You need to step back and get the larger data set. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so um, I um, we had sort of talked about doing this this particular study, and then um, you know I I would say that I've that I've I've had a um, a difficult time as being a woman, an early career woman in science. Yeah. Um, and especially after the Trump election, I had a lot of anger. Do you want to share some examples? Yeah, or anger for like, oh that you, you oh well, you just like my, my pay thing, like how yeah, do you yeah, deal okay. with that? So right. you know, it's it's not you know again without that particular interaction was that was that a sexual bias? Was that not? It was one interaction, um, but I can tell you that you know women disproportionately are set at the zero grade scale mm. um, for University of Cambridge, right? So that if you look at it in whole, that's that's biased behavior. But was wow. that one interaction of you know the powers that be setting me at the zero point? Was that a sexual bias or was that just is that whatever? bias? Is that bias almost an expectation of like oh well they're they're, they're they're used to making. I'm, I'm overgeneralizing, but like they're used to making sacrifices. So well, just, I, don't, you know, I, don't, I don't know if it's. I don't know if it's a sacrifice thing. I think it's just a. Uh, you know, one of the. My understanding from the culture at Cambridge is that uh, if somebody comes in new, they get set at the zero percent scale, mm. and so. Um, when. <laughs> Come in a sec. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, we have a crowd of people who want to meet the puppy. Oh, the puppy time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll make a note of, of where we where we were. We're not quite done yet. <laughs> That's okay. You're sad. No, I know. Oh, I did. Okay. Yeah. Hi. Oh, you, got, you can hold her. Cuddle with her. I'm Steph. Hi. Oh, this right. is Parker. I oh, yeah, yeah. I work in operations. No, I'm not yeah. just. Yeah. 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 This is Sarah. Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> just hanging around, smelling the dog. We just went on Steph and she said there was a puppy in today, so. Yeah. 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 And she likes meeting people, so. <laughs> well, you guys are. I'm turned. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, Steph works in operations on the other side of the building, yeah. so she. Schedules uh, like if people are going to and from Antarctica. Oh, awesome. and, uh, yeah, you yeah, sorry, I dropped the ball in the introduction <laughs> thing right there. Yes, yeah, so I've sent him so. and a bunch of other people around oh, here to the Antarctic. So yeah, and Sarah deals with summer visitors, so anyone who's oh, not in Bass, she okay. does all the paperwork, and Nina and I also work in ships. Yeah, I love Heather's doing paleo oceanography oh, cool. over at the Earth Sciences Department. Oh, nice. Yeah. 
Socializing, you know, yeah. Other people socializing. Yeah, she. Uh, so one of the things that the the public class recommended was also like letting her off the lead, which is mm. like, oh, it's like keep like uh, just keeping an eye on her, making sure that she doesn't run around. But she's at the mm. stage where she still like needs me or needs people, so yeah. she doesn't she doesn't stray super far. Yeah, but yeah, you're supposed to exploit that well. Because when they get older, they get even more independent. So being able to be like, come, it's like, no, I'm cool. I'm going to investigate this leaf over here now. Yeah, I'm going to check out this road. And that's going to get scary. Yeah, yeah. Don't do that. Uh, Yeah, so that that must be a nice benefit of having... You know, a puppy is that stress relief and that, yeah. that calming effect yeah. and, and yeah. Uh, yeah, all of that. And it's, um, it, I mean, most people are excited to see you, right? When you have a puppy, they're like, oh my God. Um, <laughs> and it's, I've brought the dog in um, to work a couple times um, while the students were doing their um, examinations. Okay. And I bring it into the library and they'd be nice. like, oh my God. So it's, it's like puppy therapy, yeah. right? Or dog therapy, right? Yeah. It helps reduce stress and yeah. If you didn't mind, I was super interested in you were just starting to talk about some of the challenges you had faced. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. some of the anger you mentioned yeah. around. Like, well, you know, so, yeah, so the so the pay is, is, is probably one of them. And there, there are the ones that I'm not um, really, uh, I don't really necessarily want to talk about. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, uh, the, um, but then the, the, I've always been pretty outspoken about, um, about things. Um, and, uh, I think it was like when the Trump election happened as well, it was sort of this rude awakening that, um, oh, like as, as, as far as we have come as a society, you know, there's, there's really a lot um, farther that we na- need to go and a lot of communities that are being left behind um, as well. And so um, it was, excuse you. <laughs> so the other thing about Boston Terriers is they fart yeah. a lot. Um, <laughs> the perfect punctuation for the podcast yeah for sure but um so she um the uh yeah it was just like being really angry about some of the interactions that I've had as an early career scientist and then also just like the 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 social climate like uh thinking that an election was going to go one way you know the most um qualified candidate that frankly that we've had for president in the Mm. United States go to a guy who is just a just like objectively a despicable human being yeah uh and that was really shocking and so i think a lot of people particularly in the united states like went if they if they were more liberal leaning like went through a phase of like oh what do we do like depression like heightened anxiety and this was one way for me to sort of um 
take some of that energy into something that was going to be good for the community. And, I, and a lot of people, I think, are doing that. Like, if you, there's various um, societies that have um, come up, like uh, 500 Women Scientists is now um, an organization that has pods all across the, um, the globe. Um, uh, and a lot of people are trying to figure out what is the most productive use of my time to deal with this frustration. And so this, this gendered analysis of speaking opportunities uh, was kind of a way for me to channel some of that, oh, um, yeah. that energy. Um, and it's also been, that's so really, I guess I, I should describe some of the results. Um, well, that's really good. Yeah, if you don't mind, I mean, it's, uh, uh, I, I wanted to just take a second to appreciate what you were saying about how, um, yeah, I had that same experience where, you know, that, yeah, that the election was completely shocking to me. There were so many points throughout the campaign process that I thought, like, okay, he's he's done, he's out. So many horrible things he said, and um, we don't have to spend a ton of time on that. But I just wanted you to know that, yeah, I, I had a lot of the, the one that really stuck for me was like, um, or the, the the one that I had the hardest time with was when uh, you know, candidate Trump kind of casually mentioned like maybe we should just go after people's families, you know, after the families of, of uh, people that we suspect that they're terrorists. And I just could not handle that. That is such a, an awful thing to, to say. And he just kind of said it casually, just, you know, off, off the cuff. It's very like and, mob sort of like mafia kind of yeah. mentality, right? Like you destroy the person's family and then you can't they can't like rise up against you. Or... We're, yeah, we and I don't think we're the mafia, no. are we? You know, we don't no. need to be. We we certainly need to say that's BS. We're not going to put up yeah. with that that kind of behavior. You know, we we're, we're just we're not going to tolerate that. And we need to push back in some way like you said. And um it was so shocking to me, you know, that the the way that people kind of explained that away or tried to like put you know put it under the rug and try and it, it's fine if you didn't if you didn't like the other candidate that's one thing but just kind of letting you know excusing horrible behavior constantly it feels pathological it feels yeah. feels feels wrong well, and, I, and i think it was just the 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 misogyny of just not wanting a woman there and a lot of um yeah it's and it's weird and 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 i think it 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 broadly speaks to kind of like the different standards that people of color or white women are held to um, when they try to go for promotion, when they try to go up for power, is that the, the you know, the, the, the bar is just always slightly shifted in some, in some ways, or you have to be that much more excellent, or there's a feeling that you have to be that much more excellent in order to, to, to um, progress in some ways. Yeah. And so... Um, so back to the, um, sure, yeah, the gendered analysis. The results, yeah. is that, so the so the, the 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 major result is that um, uh, well, there's a bunch of different results, um, and they're very nuanced. Um, so overall, there's a there's a gender bias in speaking opportunities between men and women, um, and that's due in part uh, due to the demographic spread of of men versus women and AGU. Women are um, disproportionately in kind of the student early career stage, and in those stages. Um, there are just fewer speaking opportunities for those roles. You've not made a big name. You've not contributed as much research um, in some ways. Um, but then what was actually surprising about the research results is that if you controlled for career stage, um, so you looked at the rate of um, student invites um, between men and women, uh, given the proportion of, of how many there were in the in the pool, um, actually when you when you called, controlled for career stage, men and women were given um, similar opportunities to speak. Um, and actually, in the early career stage and mid-career stage for women, uh, 
they were invited more than men um, for those particular mm -hmm. career stages. So I found that actually pretty encouraging um, that when you broke it down by career stages, there wasn't, um, there wasn't a, a, a huge bias one way or another. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But the other thing that was probably um, was an interesting result is that we also looked at um, the gender of the primary convener and how the, the gender of the primary convener um, influenced who was given talks and who wasn't given talks. And if you looked at, um, so men control something like 73% of the abstract allocation for mm -hmm. AGU. So they, they have um, three fourths of the abstracts to delegate essentially. Yeah. Um, and uh, men primary conveners um, invited and gave speaking opportunities to their female colleagues um, at a lower rate and below the proportion of women available in the mm -hmm. abstract pool. Um, so that's an interesting result in and itself because that suggests that the only reason that you do have parity when you control for career stage is that women um, are essentially doing the reverse. Um, they're over, over inviting other women so that you, you know, you kind of, you, you, uh, you even it out in some way. So um, the majority group, which in this case is men, are providing fewer opportunities. So then the minority group is providing many more opportunities so that you eventually get, that you do end up getting parity. Um, so that's also kind of an interesting result. Um, and I guess also the, the other part is that we, I, I think that as a community, uh, we like to think that, you know, oh, it's, you know, we just, some of these old dinosaurs need to die off and then everything <laughs> will be better because young men have more um, equitable uh, attitudes. Um, but actually when we looked across career stages of men, uh, student men to more senior roles were providing fewer opportunities for their female colleagues. Yeah. So, and, and, uh, as, as somebody who is relatively young and who I like to think of myself as, you know, having a, a broader kind of more even, you know, perspective, if you're like as, as privileged as I am, you sometimes don't know that you're doing that stuff. You just literally don't, it's just not on your radar. Mm -hmm. And even if you try to think about it, you know, from time to time, you might just not think about it at the right time and it mm -hmm. might not come up. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate it when, you know, uh, when, you know, people and you know, women especially flag things like that up and just kind of keep, keep ringing that bell. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, because we mm -hmm. need, we need to hear that bell mm -hmm. because it's just something that is not constantly ringing for us necessarily. Mm -hmm. So we need somebody to like, you know, <laughs> ring the mm -hmm. bell so we hear it. Yeah. Well, I think, so I, I, you know, I think it's, it's in part because uh, you think about your network, right? Mm, like the, yeah. the strength of your network is probably stronger among other white men. I, I don't, I, I don't want to put that words into your mouth, but I'm, I'm assuming I don't, I don't actually know. I think it, it's certainly more balanced than it was. So I started in astrophysics and okay. it was very, very heavily male yeah. dominated. Yeah. It's way better in like in, earth science and yeah. oceanography. Okay. Than yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. I think yeah. that's true as yeah. well. Um, and I would say that my my network is is very um, biased towards other white women, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's you know when you're not being very conscious of um, some of the diversity and equity issues, you you fall back onto your your network, right? So mm -hmm. I fall back onto my network, which is mostly white women. Um, and I, uh, you know, if I'm not being very conscious about it, you know, I, I need to be more thoughtful about including um, women of color or men of color as well. So I think that it, it, it takes an effort. You have to check yourself and yeah. say, like, I need, I need to be more thoughtful about this. And it's if you're not thoughtful about that, because we all we all have these inherent biases and we all kind of go to to this to the, the network where our, our connections are the most strong. So. It's hard. I think that you have to be really thoughtful about it. And um, 
I think we're starting to be more thoughtful about it, or at least I hope that we're being more thoughtful about it. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I, I really appreciate the time that you've spent here. Mm. This, this, uh, this has been a great, great conversation. Do we want to like wrap up with just a, a quick lightning round? Just get you a couple quick reactions sure. on something. Yeah, so, yeah. Do you like writing? How do you feel about writing? Oh, writing. Um, I, oh, uh, so I, I had a very conflicted relationship with writing when I was younger. Well, by younger I mean a student. Like it, like the first draft that I produced was like pulling, uh, pulling nails. But mm. I think that um, as I've gotten more experienced, I enjoy writing. I find writing a lot easier. There are some things that I struggle with, like reviews sometimes, but um, producing a first draft that's not total crap is a little bit easier now. So I think that I've, my, my relationship with writing has improved. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I want to ask you two questions, and I want to tell you both of them so you know that okay. it's, a, it's a pair of them. And uh, so one of them is, what's something that you really hate about your job? And I'm happy to share something too, you know, yeah. if, if you want me to. Yeah. And what's something that you really, you know, love about your job? Um, and I can share one of mine to start with. Like, I think uh, what I, one of the things that I, maybe hate's a strong word, but the, the, the insecurity is frustrating and it's difficult psychologically sometimes, you know, yeah. the idea of, you know, hopping from place to place yeah. and doing that lack of long-term stability. That might not just be academia. You know, I, I get the f impression that actually in, in the public, in the private sector even that folks are running into that as well um but uh that's something that i i do kind of hate that just in terms of my reaction to it but it, it's a reality it's there and what i love though is getting to work with you know so many great people from all over the place and so many interesting problems i get to have conversations like this i mean i, I, re I really love that i really get a lot out of that um yeah so it'd be um is it crawling away? okay it's okay yeah so um what do you think? What do you, what's your? Feel free to answer in whichever yeah, yeah, order yeah. you want. Um, what's something you hate and something you love? I think part of the I think part of the the thing that I hate about um, academia is that it can be very hierarchical. Mm. And so uh, when it ends up being very hierarchical and you have you know people making decisions and the powers powers that be, you end up um, having a lot of like well we've been doing it this way for you know oh, yeah. 800 years in Cambridge for whatever reason so that's <laughs> just the way that we're going to do it um, and I think that there's I think it's kind of those structural issues that really frustrate me about yeah. my job sometimes yeah um, something you love <laughs> something that I love I oh I mean I really enjoy working with students I really yeah. enjoy um it's, it's both like frustrating and running because you want them to have really positive experiences with science, especially when they're starting off. Mm. So you, you try to, um, you know, constrain a problem that you think will have an easy answer and then science happens and it's much more difficult <laughs> than you had originally yeah. um, anticipated. That's right. So it's, I, I, I really love um, having or taking students through that process and also at least trying my best to create a, a positive environment so that they you know, don't end up hating sciences or thinking yeah. that it's not for them or, or, or having them think that like they, they can do it no matter what they like look like or what their background was. If they are, you know, a, a, a PhD student who's 40 mm. <laughs> uh, um, or, you know, um, you okay, Bobby. Hi buddy. Did it, was that the, the bully stick? You're, you're coughing that up. <laughs> um, so I, I think that that's probably the most rewarding part is, 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 is taking students through the research process and having them that, that sense of discovery. Yeah. As difficult as it is sometimes, it's, it ends up being pretty rewarding. 
Cool. That's great. How do you feel? I feel great. Yeah. yeah. Anything else you want to talk about or cover? Um, no, I think that that's 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 pretty much it. Yeah. I mean, okay. I yeah. Yeah, it's Sounds been a good, good discussion. Thank you. Thank you. This has been great. It's been one of my favorites. I, I love all of them, but this has been so good. We talked about so many different things and really, you know, got into it and delved into the details. I really appreciate it. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, we don't have a formal way to end. For a while, I kept trying to find some formal, you know, way to finish it, but I didn't come up with one. And I feel like, I feel a little awkward trying to do one, so, I'm, you know, you just kind of let it go. But, um, <laughs> you know, do you want to... Do you want to make a sound, Fuffy? She's what, not, what, a big not a big barker. Yeah, I mean, I think Obviously the most, the most sound you had was probably the, the sometimes she snores and then she farts. That's, yeah. Those are basically the sounds That's that awesome. she makes. That's a great soundscape. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Yeah. Ford. Yeah, thank you. Thank <laughs> you very Ford. much. Thanks. Dr. Jones. <laughs> there you have it. My conversation with Dr. Heather Ford. Again, Heather's website uh, is heatherlford.com. She's a paleo-oceanographer as you just heard, of course. And you can find her on Twitter at HL underscore Ford. Uh, thanks again uh, to both Dr. Ford and to her puppy uh, for stopping by and for uh, really having such a great conversation. It was just one of my favorites. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, no announcements, nothing to mention. Uh, check out the Ologies podcast if you are so inclined. Uh, I'm quickly becoming a fan of that one, and it's relevant to um, you know, the kind of stuff that we talk about here in terms of science and connecting with individual scientists and getting a sense of, of who they are. And that podcast is real professional. They've got it all polished and fancy, which is uh, not something you're going to get around here. No, no. Uh, we keep it uh, very casual, and by we, I mean me and the guests is all I mean by we when I say we. Um, okay, well, again, thanks for downloading. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. We're still on roughly a two-week schedule, should be for the foreseeable future, um, so you can look for that. Talk to you later. Take care. Riding it out. Rolling along. Bye.